Welcome to the Long Take Review, a film podcast with one eye always on the Oscar list. I'm your host, Jen Subchakche Bankard, and I have with me a group of friends, but they're not just kids. First up, he's not just self-important, he's actually important. It's Greg Cass. How's it going, Greg? Jen, I am the son of a mother and the nephew of a female aunt, and I'm ready to discuss these movies. <laughs> really? You went for a Will Ferrell quote? <laughs> that's, that's great. Uh, that's, that's on brand. Um, and next, thanks to him, all problems of feminism are solved. It's P.T. McNiff. How are you doing, P.T.? Uh, to be honest, when I found out the patriarchy wasn't about horses, I lost interest. I'm doing well. You know, when I when I when I set up the overall intro as a Ken joke, I didn't realize that all of the quotes were going to also be <laughs> also be from Barbie. That's great. Um, and last but not least, and he is totally not required to have a, a, a quote from a movie. He doesn't just read the music; he can hear the music. It's Antonio Elefano. Welcome back, Antonio. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Uh, this is not from Barbie, but. Um... I don't understand the question and I won't respond to it. You know what that's about? <laughs> yeah. Remember? Love it. All right. Love it. Love it. Love it. <laughs> you did it. Um, so so this is an extra exciting episode for, for two reasons. One, we are celebrating Barbenheimer, perhaps the biggest movie event of the year. One that will surely go down in movie history. And we actually, this is the first time we've assembled our entire Oscars coverage crew um, from last Oscar season, so I'm I'm really happy that we could all we could all get together for the first time. Uh, if this is your first time listening to us, we're going to have a brief section at the top of the show that is spoiler free, designed for those who have not had a chance to see both of these films. And when spoilers are ready to blow, we'll make the switch to spoiler mode, it's supremely clear. Uh, so nothing nothing to worry about. We will protect you from spoilers, like like radiation. Um, but first. <laughs> we do need to do a movie news check-in. Uh, the Hollywood, the strike in Hollywood with the writers and the actors continues, uh, and uh, so that's a big that's big news that we want to keep checking in on and spot spotlighting. But then also just the idea of Barbenheimer in of itself is movie news, <laughs> so <laughs> hopefully that will naturally segue us into talking about both of the movies. Um, so yeah, as I said, the the strike continues. I think the latest thing that I saw popping up was that. Brian Cranston gave a particularly great speech. I don't know if anyone else saw that a really fiery speech where he put, I think Bob Iger in specifically on blast. Um, so yeah, if you haven't seen that like on YouTube or whatever, or on social media, check that out. He gives a great speech unsurprisingly. Um, and, you know, as a podcast, we just wanted to acknowledge because there, there has, has been a lot of kind of online discourse, especially in the podcasting community about, and, and sort of on social media about, what podcasts should do sort of in solidarity with the strike. Um, I think initially the, it was pretty clear cut because we consider ourselves movie critics. This is a movie podcast where we're, we're critics reviewing the films uh, and, you know, critics and entertainment journalists seemed pretty in the clear, right? They should keep doing what they're doing. Uh, and that's not, that's not crossing the picket line, right. Or, or is kind of like against the strike. Uh, but you know, it's gotten a little bit more complicated because SAG after came out with some guidelines for, I think it was more targeted actors who are hosting podcasts and like what counts, what, what, like what's okay. And what's not okay. We, we, a couple of podcasts that we know and love sort of have said in solidarity, we're going to, we're going to stop recording. Um, we have decided to continue doing what we're doing and that is primarily because I think 
for me, I think it's important to maintain a distinction between what's promoting a film or promoting struck work and what's criticism, which I think is very valuable, not only to the industry, but to society in terms of the arts and like the role criticism plays in relationship to the arts. Um, So I think we see what we're doing as not promoting the work of the studios. Uh, and so we're going to we're kind of going to keep moving on. And the other reason, too, I think maybe I'll let Greg make this point about, you know, uh, celebrating good work by actors and writers that deserve to be paid fairly. Um, and and so that's sort of where we're at. But we'd love to hear from listeners about if you have thoughts about this, about how we should be kind of doing things differently. We're we're, we're open, open to your your ideas. But does anyone else want to add anything kind of in terms of the the stance of the podcast or what we're thinking about in terms of. I'll I'll just uh, jump on to say, yeah, I think I, I think it is first and foremost a, a task of criticism that we're up to. So that's the best explanation I have for this. The second piece is that actors and writers have said, you know, they've asked consumers, don't stop watching our stuff, right? Uh, because that d- requires the value. So I don't know all the curves of, uh, of the conversation ahead, but I imagine that we're going to talk about how these two projects are the results of incredibly creative, important writers and directors and actors. And this is, you know, a criticism, a, a work of criticism about what they're up to. But this is also a celebration of what you can get when you actually have good creative people on what should be your hollow mindless, uh, this is based on a doll property, for example, right? And so I think um, if I were a listener of this podcast, I would take this as, hey, I'm going to go see these movies if I haven't yet. And maybe, hey, I'm going to go check out the things Christopher Nolan has made before this or after this if or both before and after this, if it's tenant, I don't know how tenant works still. Uh, and maybe I'll go watch little women. Um, you know, uh, this, and I'm going to go check out Ladybird cause I never caught it. And that's absolutely what people should do to support the actors and writers. And that, um, I think both helps give them tiny little bits of residuals while they're striking, but also just reminds the studio of the value of the good work that has been done before. And also tenant. So <laughs> yikes. Yikes. Um, this is not a tenant podcast, Greg. <laughs> um, though I'm sure we'll talk about Christopher Nolan's other work at some point, inevitably. Uh, but yeah, I think that's that's really well said. And I yeah, I think that as long as we're kind of keeping the strike in the conversation and and in giving it giving it the spotlight, amplifying the voices of those who are kind of asking for for fair compensation. Um, I think, I think we're, we'll feel good about that. So, um, all right. And then other huge news that will naturally segue us into our Barbenheimer review, crushing it at the box office. (laughs) (laughs) Both of these movies. I mean, I think, um, last I checked Barbie was at 188 million. I want to say that was through Monday. I want to say that thing I just checked. And I didn't I didn't get a, a more up to date number on Oppenheimer. Does anyone have does anyone have that at their fingertips? I want to say it was fifty five million was their weekend opening. Uh, hold on, I'm, I'm trying to look it up right now. It's gotten mm-hmm. I'm I'm on the numbers. And and anecdotally, gotten... I had a friend trying to get tickets for Thursday night the week after it came out, and everything is still sold out around here in the good theaters so that may mean front row way weird seats are available but it's still really hard to get tickets to 
Barbie or a kind of boutique uh, projection of Oppenheimer? Well, so uh, Barbie, uh, I, I believe this is including yesterday, which is is Tuesday for the listeners. Uh, it's at two hundred and fourteen million for uh, for the domestic box office, um, one ninety four international, four hundred eight worldwide. Uh, after five days, six days, uh, and then Oppenheimer's at ninety five uh, million domestic, one twenty three international. Oh wow, two eighteen worldwide for a three hour. biopic that is mostly men in suits talking in rooms so about physics pretty impressive about yeah about (laughs) physics and morality uh to to some degree so yeah it's it's in it's it's impressive how well so so yeah this is gonna be i think something that at least industry specialists are probably going to be trying to break down for years to come in terms of like as a case study um but just anecdotally, I wanted to open up. Did anyone? H- how was Barbenheimer touching your life? I know all of us as as cinephiles, right? We were we were in on this no matter what, probably. But it really does feel like it's kind of expanded to a much more mainstream movie going audience. Yes, I see a lot. There's lots of nodding. Yeah, <laughs> we're, we're, yeah. Yeah, not, nodding. A great reaction for a podcast. Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, I think that a lot. Uh, yeah, there's there was a, been a lot of talk about it, and there's. There's there's people who are cross pollinating in a way you know this is uh, I'm more seeing it online I feel like the people I talk to who generally go to the movies were already primed to see both of these separately um, I haven't I haven't necessarily heard from people who I'd be like oh you know I know you only go to the movies maybe once or twice a year um, none of them have talked to me about this but it's also we're sort of in the middle of summer um, there's maybe less less uh, constant check ins. Um, based on our collective work schedules. But, uh, you know, just on sort of unrelated online chatter, it's just there as like, oh, and of course, like we've gone and seen uh, Barbenheimer. Did we do it? You know, did people do it both in one day? Did they separate it out? Um, Was there spillover? They went to go see Barbie. It was sold out. So they saw Oppenheimer instead. And, you know, what it, what it, curve that must be for their lives um so yeah it really is everywhere and as you said jen you know, this feels like it's the biggest movie day of the year and uh that's not just because to smuggle in one more like bit of strike news it's possible a bunch of other movies are going to be delayed into next year so things that we've all been looking forward to challengers is already moved to next april from next month i think is when it's supposed to come out yeah they bailed uh, from venice they were supposed to premiere yeah. at venice and then they're not doing that now yeah. Dune. We got to talk about Dune. Dune's I will say, big. I was in my Barbie screen. They showed the Challengers trailer. The crowd was hyped and like, ooh, like this looks like sexy fun. And then I immediately checked my phone after and was like, it's been delayed till April. I'm like, really? You couldn't like decide that before you got the trailer? But I guess maybe the hype will, will stick around or people will. It's probably it. also just a logistical thing of like the trailers are locked in a long, long before yeah. any, like they, they, they can't update them fast enough, I think to go with the film but um yeah lots of it's like it seems like every day there's a new announcement about another film that's getting pushed um you know which is an unfortunate byproduct of this of this but if it gets people to realize hey remember barbenheimer and how awesome that was like we're mad at you studios because now we don't have any (laughs) we're not where's our next where's our next movie fix right um so yeah if we have like a really dry spell into the fall i think that could be problematic but also good potentially for the for the strike effort 
Um, for me, my anecdotal Barbenheimer thing was that on Friday, which is when I went to go see Oppenheimer, um, I was wearing my my Barbenheimer shirt, which was in the laundry. I was I was like, oh, I should have worn it for this, but um, it's it's in the wash. Uh, but it's a you know a pink Barbie pink, and it has Barbenheimer with like a mushroom cloud like in the Barbie font. And um, you so can check the long take reviews Instagram page if you want. It is true to see a picture, <laughs> a picture of Jen in her shirt. I have never been so popular, just like dropping my kids off at school and camp. And like, and it was interesting because it, maybe it's just because the demographic of who's a teacher for the age that my kids are at also correlates with this, dem- the, like with l- mid to late twenties women. But there were like at least three or four teachers who stopped me to be like, who normally just say, hi, good morning. And that's it. But to stop me to be like, are you, which movie are you seeing today? Like or with the order, like they had so many questions about, and they wanted to say, they asked me, but some of them asked me where I got my shirt, which was from Etsy support independent artists. Um, <laughs> and, um, and I made sure I didn't get one that was like a copying an artist's photo that I'd seen on social, social media. Um, uh, anyway. So, so yeah. So to me, I was like, wow, this is like really gone beyond my normal sort of like movie, movie fan network. Uh, in a way that was was surprising. I'm curious as to how everyone saw the two. So I, I didn't watch it in a like back to back. I watched um, Barbie Saturday night um, and then watched Oppenheimer Sunday morning. And I'm glad I did that <laughs> um, <laughs> after watching both movies. And and I, I for me, I, I feel like movies benefit from some time afterward to sit with whatever you saw, especially since I knew we were going to have this conversation. So um, so anyway, I was just curious uh, how did how did you all. How did you all do it? Well, I, I was somewhat at the uh, uh, mercy of logistics um, where the tickets went on sale while I was on vacation and traveling and I wasn't uh, uh, on top of it. So by the time I was like, oh, yeah, I should make sure I get tickets for those. I didn't realize how fast everything was selling out. Um, plus, I was tied into the local theater downtown uh, the Alamo in downtown LA because I have the monthly pass now. Um, so uh, I did Oppenheimer alone uh, at 11 in the morning on on Friday, but then couldn't see Barbie until Tuesday, um, which is why this is being recorded so late. Thank you, uh, fellow fellow hosts, for uh, for your patience. Um, everyone else, I think, was done by Sunday at noon, uh, and we waited to like two or three extra days for me. But so yeah, I had a lot of time in between. I probably would have done them like on back-to-back days if I could have uh, you know maybe I would have done like uh, seeing it uh, on my own uh, Oppenheimer on my own during the day um, and then Barbie in the evening but it would have been like leave the theater do something else get Jasmine uh, to join because uh, as Jasmine has said I believe I, I relay this in the podcast this is my Star Wars as soon as the Barbie like trailer first images were coming out she's like I need to see this like this is this is like this taps into my childhood um, so uh, that I could not see um, without her so, um, so yeah I had a few days in between my original plan was Friday Friday Oppenheimer Saturday Barbie that got pushed to Monday night for Barbie um, because the the other moms that I was trying to see with we we had various complications as you do with kids always about like we had to, we kind of we couldn't we couldn't do it as we originally planned on Saturday um, so so I had mine a little bit more spread out um, but and I, honestly I think my original order that I 
wanted to do was Oppenheimer and Barbie because of just the the tone. Like I wanted to end with something that was a little lighter, funnier, happier. And, and I, in I'm, I'm can report that I'm glad that I did that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But, but, you know, obviously you saw it in the opposite order, Antonio. So yeah, I think that's really interesting. Greg had it. You're the only one of us who did the true double feature back to back, I think. Yeah, and I think I regret it. Uh, <laughs> um, so yeah, I did. I did Friday night, uh, six o'clock Oppenheimer. Had to do the math on factoring in the solid twenty-five minutes of AMC trailers. So then ten fifteen was Barbie. So I had time to um, to exit my theater, go into the men's room, and uh, change from my black to my pink T-shirt. Uh, and nothing makes you check check your life choices faster than changing your shirt in an AMC bathroom for an Instagram opportunity. Um, so uh, I did that, took my uh, photo in my pink shirt with the Barbie poster and then went in um, uh, to that that next screening. Um, it was a lot. And I think I was grumpier at Barbie and I will say the crowd in Barbie had mostly I think done the same thing as much as you can tell with faces and so on and I would say I think we were less receptive to some of the jokes than we would have been had we gone in fresh so if there's somebody out there thinking about that my recommendation would be catch like a two o'clock Oppenheimer go out with whoever you uh you know went to that movie with talk through your feelings kind of debrief decompress um you know uh the the big picture was pointing out go to whatever like chain mall restaurant is closest to your theater like margaritaville i think my theater has a buffalo wild wings next to it uh and something like that where you're really like not challenged by the meal you're just inhaling uh garbage food and then (laughs) there goes those sponsorships uh and and then uh go to barbie as like your evening show like you know i i no disrespect to Barbie. If I had like a two drink kind of good feeling in me for Barbie, I think I would have loved it like beyond the moon. So and maybe I, I should have. Uh, so I think that's the the evening I would recommend, not the like psychopath. I just got to grind this out one and then the other. <laughs> Don't think about your feelings. Just change your T-shirt that I did. You're really <laughs> stretching the word evening because that sounds like an <laughs> afternoon through nighttime. Yeah. Um, you know, seven or eight hours. Uh, but yeah, I think I think a break in between is a good idea. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, I as think- one of my favorite podcasts says, the 3 p.m. is the 2 a.m. of day drinking. So just like make it a whole afternoon. Nice. All right. I think we're we're ready to actually give our thoughts because I'm, I'm seeing seeing that peek through kind of our discussion of our experience of the two movies. So what I'd like everyone to do is to give a, a double short take. So you don't have to go in a particular order, but what were sort of your takes on both of these films? Which one did, did you enjoy one more than the other? Um, you know, tr- you can feel free to kind of re- compare them or relate them. You don't have to have your two short takes be totally separate. Um, and yeah, what and, and going into each film, which one did you think you were going to like more? And then th- did that match up with what actually happened? So Antonio, we'll start with you. Sure. Uh, all right. I'll. I would have thought myself um, an Oppenheimer person. I, I. I have no connection to Barbie, um, and I have no nostalgia for 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 it. I don't think my sister had any um, really growing up, so I wouldn't have seen the movie at all 
if it wasn't for Greta Gerwig, who I absolutely adore. Um, uh, so, so again, I thought I would have thought myself an Oppenheimer person, assumed that was the film I would enjoy more, and I was wrong. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> so for me, uh, in terms of what what won the not quite full like the the, the twenty four hours um, that I where I watched these, it, Barbie won for me. Um, to me, the movie is so much better than it should have been given the source material. Um, and um, from my perspective, instead of lionizing or or just mocking her subject, I thought that Gerwig used Barbie as a sort of springboard for her welcome thoughts on modern womanhood culminating in this in this monologue, which we'll talk about later when we get to the spoiler section. Um, uh I agree with Greg. I, I, I was, I, I had a drink <laughs> before Barbie. Um, I, I, I thought that I didn't think that all the jokes landed, um, but there were a lot, right? Like it reminded me of sort of like peak 30 rock that it was just dense with, um, with mm. jokes. Like there was one moment where I, where I dropped popcorn onto my lap and I, and I looked down and then everyone started laughing and I freaked out <laughs> because I was like, I missed, I missed it. But I didn't want to be that person asking like, what, what was the joke that they just said? <laughs> so, um, and I, and like a crazy person, I was like, you know, like 30 minutes into the movie, everyone laughed when I dropped my popcorn. What was that? She's like, what the hell are you talking about? So anyway, but, um, I, I had a great time. I had a great time. Uh, and I was, I was surprisingly moved also at various points in the, in the film. As for Oppenheimer, um, I admired the movie um, a lot, but I, but I, I didn't quite love it. Um, it's, 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 I'm going to use an adjective that I hate because it, it was applied to movies that I loved in the past, <laughs> like power of the dog. And like, um, I don't know, power of the dog was, was, was the main one that I, that I remember now that like, it, to me, it was like chili. It was a chili, chili movie with, um, and I think that they use this term, um, in the, in the film, like, like a sort of Sphinx like central character, um, which is okay. And I think, and, and that's not a, um, a discredit to Killian Murphy, who I think is amazing. Um, but uh, what was interesting to me was that for a movie with lots of characters, I didn't find a sort of sympathetic entry point character to sort of latch onto in the way that like, if we're using, if we're carrying power of the dog, Cody Smith McPhee's character, I think was, was that character there. Um, I think that, that the movie had a really high degree of difficulty. Um, um but unlike Barbie, the movie was constrained by having to be faithful, obviously, to Oppenheimer's biography. This isn't to say that he's not a worthy subject, like he's fascinating. But for me, I love Christopher Nolan, but I kind of, I think I prefer Christopher Nolan sort of unanchored to any source text. Um, I think it's hard. Um, so I'm just going to talk about a little bit at the beginning and then the end and then, and, then I'll, and then I'm done. I think it's hard to represent thought, especially scientific thought in an interesting way in film. And I wasn't... Um, I'm, I'm curious to take your takes on, on sort of like how dazzled you were by the science and the talk of physics. Um, but I wasn't, I, I wasn't quite into it. Like I, I, it didn't, it didn't do anything for me at the beginning. And I was trying to think of like a movie that expressed thought or like these kinds of really difficult things. Well, and, and, like it was like 10, 10 minutes before we started this the the best example i could come up with and this is terrible this is like uh there was a tv movie years ago with of an adaptation of a play called wit margaret edson's wit um and mm. it, and it and it's um talking about the poetry of john dunn which i find incredibly inaccessible but the movie made it incredibly accessible i think it's easier to translate that into something that audiences can can understand better than than like the physics involved here but like 
you know, yeah, they put it like the fission and fusion and whatever. I was like, I don't understand what's going on. <laughs> um, so um, uh, one thing about Oppenheimer, I feel like through the first two acts, I kept looking at my watch, which is kind of a bad, which is a mm. bad sign. But the last act I found to be the most propulsive and I stopped looking at my watch. Um, that's where a sort of like antagonist, like a human antagonist emerges and we see this sort of human to human conflict. Um, but as exciting as that last act was, it felt like a, like a, a movie I'd seen before, a version of a movie that I'd seen before. Um, so as much as I was sort of swept into it a little bit more, um, it also felt a little less special at that point. Um, so anyway, that that's my not so short take <laughs> on, on the two. <laughs> That's all right. They're, they're beefy short takes because they're two movies. So it's fine. Um, Greg, how about you? A beefy short take. Hmm. Uh, okay. Uh, you know, I, I was thinking of a, when, when we were preparing, I was going to do a David Chen style, like um, a boom goes the dynamite where you describe one movie, but oops, it's both of them. And it's almost like it's too easy, which is really strange considering the subject matter. And, and I'm sure we'll get into that more. So um, I will say that night. Well, let's just get out, out of the way the comment. Everybody should see both of these movies like, uh, you know, whatever quibbles I have about either. They are absolutely worth seeing and they're worth seeing um, as a part of the monoculture moment. Um, I got home. Um, I guess I didn't see my wife Friday night because it was like 1 a.m. <laughs> by the time I'd been uh, debarbied. Um, and so then on Saturday, I was like, they're both awesome. You should go see one. She's rushing out to see Barbie because we do things separately because of kids and so on. Um, so uh, absolutely should would recommend both these movies to just about everybody I know um, because they are incredible. And it's just special. You know, I think there are a lot of movies this summer that we had hoped might be this kind of everybody needs to see it. Um, everything everywhere all at once was the last time I felt like everybody I know should go see this. And like half of them did, but I feel like there's a chance, like three quarters of the people I know are going to go to both these movies. And I, I just want to hang a hat on how special that is. Studios are garbage, but going to the movies is special and needs to continue to exist. Um, so I'm really glad we have that moment. Um, I think, uh, my, uh, general positive vibes for both. I think where Barbie fell a little flat for me is I felt there were a lot of jokes that felt clever and that I appreciated the construction of and that I didn't laugh at. And I'm like, I really should be laughing at this moment. Like um, there was a little bit of like, you know, some people in my crowd were rolling at the opening of it. And I was like, Oh, but this was the first trailer. Like you, you all saw that, right? Like, how did you end up here? If you didn't see the trailer, what, what you're not my people. Um, so, uh, so there was a little of that going on at times for me and Barbie, which put Barbie at a solid four and a half. I completely think Greta Gerwig, well, and for all of those jokes, there were some that Greta Gerwig cut me to the bone. Like, oh, you think you're an Allen? Here you go, buddy. You're a Ken. And it hurt. It hurt bad. Um, not Well, I'll get into an example that I, I received in a text message uh, from a friend. Um, so I really did appreciate the Greta Gerwig of it all. This is absolutely a Greta Gerwig film. Um, and I agree with Antonio. I, I went into... Um, the little women she created her last film and thought it would be like, okay, yeah, I've heard this. And I found it revelatory and just a complete five-star movie that I will watch yearly till my dying day while PT's watching dead reckoning part one. Uh, but, <laughs> um, 
Oppenheimer, um, I, I actually was really glad to hear Antonio say he found the last hour propulsive because that's the opposite of what I've heard a lot of critics say. And I'm more in your camp, Antonio. I thought um, I kind of I, I agree with, with the way it all builds up to to Trinity. Uh, it's hard to not give spoilers, but also what are we spoiling? It's, it's, it's history. history. If, it's, um, if it's history, then I think it's OK. Yeah. Um, and yet I, I, it had me. It totally worked for those first two hours for me. I probably was a little more positive and And there were some striking imagery I just will always think of in a not in a meme way. Barbie has a million memes that I will use to communicate forever. Oppenheimer didn't, but things will last with me in certain ways. Um, but I did find the last hour totally compelling. My immediate text afterward uh, would uh, get us an explicit rating, but it was like, Emily Blunt, like, I get it. Like, I, I was so mad for two hours. I'm like, why did Emily Blunt take this part? This is nothing. And then she gets one scene where I was like, that's why she like, you know, there is a weird uh here we go. A uh, patriarchal instinct. I think a lot of people have to like defend these actresses and be like, you deserve better. Cause I'm woke and you should be given more money. And, and like, they don't need that. And Emily Blunt and Margot Robbie proved that with these choices. They're like, Oh, you think you're going to dictate what I should and shouldn't do. I'm going to be just fine without you can. So I, I love it. And so, uh, so uh, I think I went four and a half on Barbie five on Oppenheimer and totally think everybody should go see both um, again with a, a nice dinner or some gap in between. Greg Cass actresses don't deserve more money. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I concur with uh, what Craig said and everyone else was nodding along as well. These are both excellent movies and are totally worth your time. Uh, and even if you weren't necessarily thinking about doing both, obviously you don't have to do both on the same day. But, uh, you know, if, if, you know, you're drawn towards one and not the other, I would recommend trying to see both. I think that you, that there's a lot of enjoyment that many people can get, uh, if not everyone, from from the two movies. Uh, it was interesting to hear uh, Antonio's breakdown of sort of, well, there's one movie I thought uh, I was, I was going to lean towards, I was going to like more, but actually that one sort of like, it wasn't bad, but maybe let me down a little, or, or I was colder than I thought I would be. Um, and I liked the other one more because I felt the same way, but it was the opposite movies. Um, because I, uh, I mean, I'm not out on Christopher Nolan. I didn't think I would be out, but, uh, Tenet was rough. We've been making some Tenet jokes uh, that didn't connect with me. I'm also, I feel like on a weird little island that like, I didn't like Interstellar really at all. Like I thought Interstellar, watching Interstellar was like watching earlier Christopher Nolan movies through the eyes of people who have never liked Christopher Nolan movies. I was like, oh, I get it. I get why people didn't like Inception or The Prestige. Like I understand now because that's what it felt like watching that movie. Um Dunkirk was great, but that was very sort of short and and different. Um, so you know, Oppenheimer seemed more in line with an Interstellar and a Tenet um, in terms of it's a three hour story, multiple timelines. Uh, so I was worried that I would be like sort of kept at arms uh, at arm's length, and it does have that chilly aspect, Antonio talked about um but i was so kind of engrossed uh by by it all um i did find the science i don't know i don't know if i just understood it better than I <laughs> um but uh because but I, I doubt it because you know i am also a humanities man and i was just like mm -hmm, fusion fission yes good 
Um, sounds good. Got it. Um, Einstein changed things. Hmm, sure. I'm sure he did. Um, I'm trying to think back to my philosophy of science class, which was the like for English majors um, in college that was just about like the thought without the math. Uh, of science, but, uh, but, you know, I don't know, like I thought that whole thing was engrossing uh, and really worked for me. And I'm also, I'm with both Antonio and Greg on team that last hour. Um, like you think, you know, where, cause like, you know, w- how the movie's going to build up to a big climax. Uh, and then, uh, I mean, this is, you know, again, I don't think this is necessarily a spoiler, um, but um, the thing that you think is coming at the end of the movie comes way earlier than you expect. And then the time after it is uh, like ratchets up the tension on a much smaller scale, but in a way that I thought was really impactful. Uh, so uh, I'm excited to talk about that a little bit more. Um, and I, I had a blast with Barbie, but I think this is like more it's the, sort of a discussion of of sort of like hype, sort of self-hype, external hype. Um, and, and also to some degree promotion because, uh, you know, because I saw Oppenheimer like pretty early, like, I mean, there were people could have seen it the night before, I guess, but I didn't hear anybody talk about Oppenheimer before I saw it. Uh, whereas by Tuesday, when I saw Barbie, I'd heard a bunch of people be like, it's 10 out of 10. This movie's a masterpiece. People who general, my friends who generally don't like things were like, this was delightful. I had a great time. Like they really liked it. So when I went to go see it, I was like, this movie's going to be amazing. Uh, and it was great. Um, but it wasn't amazing for me. And, you know, there were some things that like didn't, uh, you know, I, I think this, my expectations had ratcheted up against my, uh, my, my better, um, my, my better understanding of what I should do going into a movie. Um, so I, I think that return trips to uh, Barbie land will be uh, more positive for me and I'm, I'm going to be able to enjoy it for what it is. Um, but that initial showing was a little bit of like, oh, okay. Okay, I guess that was it. Um, and I think to to Greg's point, um, you know, the the good news for people who haven't seen Barbie who are are still listening somehow um, are that the all the things that you have seen or almost everything you've seen in the like the trailers um, uh, and I guess the I haven't seen the commercials, but the trailers for it are really kind of packed into the first act of the movie, and there's a lot more that unfolds that you may not you know know or or be able to sort of. Um, pull out from the uh, from the marketing, uh, but uh, but that made that first act kind of land with a thud. You know, th- this is the downside of the sort of nice fancy recliner you get food theater. I think the audience isn't as rock. It's also maybe going Tuesday early afternoon in the middle of the week. Um, it was totally sold out, but it wasn't like a super boisterous crowd. Um, but like, I feel like everyone in there was just like, yeah, I've seen that joke. Uh-huh, I've seen that joke too. Um, so it didn't like build the momentum that I think the movie would have if I had never seen anything. Like I would have laughed at a bunch of stuff that I've seen like 10 times in a theater before because that trailer was shown a lot. Um, whereas I think with Oppenheimer, like the trailer for that movie got me pumped for a movie that isn't really the movie that it is. And I think it's a better movie than what the trailer had set up. But it was like one of those things where it's like the trailer made you think it was going to be like this sort of tone for a lot of it like i thought i knew four-fifths of what was going to happen in oppenheimer like chronologically through the movie uh and it was it was chopped up in a very different way and presented the story in uh in a different order so that was a fun sort of twist so i don't know i think that there's something about expectations there's something about like how the promotion set me up to think certain ways about these movies but ultimately they're both great but i am on team oppenheimer Mm -hmm. i'm 
uh, you know, I'm I'm more pro that movie than Barbie. Can can we get an image of PT saying I'm something of a scientist myself on our, <laughs> on our Instagram account? Yeah. <laughs> yes, we can try to put that together for the Instagram account. Yes, <laughs> amazing. Um, all right, so oh, this is so interesting. I'm really glad that we have you know everyone's pretty positive, but we have different takes and kind of like we lean towards one movie over the other differently. I in general, I was on such a high coming out of both of these movies. Like, I think my attitude was like, what a time to be alive. <laughs> I've now seen both of these movies. And they, and they are so different tonally. Um, and yet, I think, to go back to something PT said, I think a pull quote for Barbie that I've seen in ads and stuff on social media is, and I, I'm, I forgive me, I don't remember who, which outlet or which critic said it, but it's not what you think it is. It's better. And I would actually say that applies for me for both of these movies. Um, because for Oppenheimer, sort of as, again, as PT was sort of alluding to, you know, because of the historical, it's based on historical events, I sort of like had a, a vision of what type of movie it would be. And it really, especially as Antonio said, in that third act shifts gears in a way that was very surprising. And I was like, oh, this is what this movie is? Okay, great. Um, and I, I was on board for all of it. Uh, I have to say, I was in high school kind of a physics nerd. Um, I, I I took AP physics instead of, you know, one of the other sciences. And I was in like a physics Olympiad club. And, uh, it, it, you know, and so, and I think when I, when, I don't think Greg was in this class with me, but in grad school, there was like a early, like intro to rhetoric seminar. And at one point I brought up like, well, Newton had the theory F equals MA and then Einstein comes along with relativity and it like totally changes the discourse of like what or like it was some example of like of something we were learning in class and everyone was just like, why are you speaking science to us? <laughs> <laughs> so 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 I, I, all that is to say that that I was enthralled by all of the like the the physicists talking to each other about physics, uh, physics and the the there's like a tension between theoretical physics and practice like practical application of physics um, that I've just found like so, so interesting. And I did not, I did not look at my watch once it the seeing Oppenheimer was probably the closest to a spiritual experience I've ever had at the at movie theater. Um, <laughs> like uh, I was just like hanging on the edge of my seat for the entire time. I think I was like clutching my legs. Like I, and I, like I like when at the end of the movie, I looked down and I was like, why are there all these marks on my legs? Because <laughs> I was like, I was like so tense. Um, and, and part of that I think was I, so I had the privilege of seeing this in the, in the way that no one intended the, the um, 70 millimeter IMAX in the correct aspect ratio, right. That he, that he filmed it in and everything. It's, it's um, not many theaters around the country. I think it's, I, I kept trying to find the accurate number and I kept finding conflicting things, but it's, it's like 19 theaters have, have this setup or that they can do the sort of like, and I'm sure some people have seen pictures on the internet of the, the, the huge reel of film, the 11 miles of film that they, that they use. And so my theater had that. And, and I, if you, if you can see this movie in that format, I would highly, highly recommend it because it really was that much more immersive because the, it, the screen is tall. Uh, so it's not wide it's not cropped like widescreen. It is for some of it, it shifts kind of shifts back and forth, but for a lot of the key scenes, it's just like, wall to wall like i am just i'm in in the scene 
Uh, and and that worked for sort of the big, like land, sweeping landscape kind of like action explosive scenes <laughs> like <laughs> um, that you would expect this movie to have. Uh, but it also really worked for just like close ups of some of the actors, especially Killian Murphy. Like it was just it, and that plus the sound and the editing. And I just felt like this was Nolan firing on all cylinders. I'm not ready to call this his best film necessarily, um, but I just feel I just I was I was really blown away uh, by it. Um, and then so I was like, well, Barbie can't possibly live up to that experience. Right. <laughs> um, and, and it didn't quite. So like I would give both of these movies five stars. But if I had to choose as my husband, John forced me to, he was like, well, no, you got to choose one. Like which one? And so I'm on T if I have to choose, I'm on T Oppenheimer. Um, and that's, that's really by a hair's edge because when I saw Barbie, I was equally blown away because of the writing. Like I was just like, how did Greta Gerwig, not only how does she get away with this movie, right? Because there's the whole thing of like, it's, it's, product placement for Mattel, right? Mattel was involved in making the movie. Um, so there's only so much she can do in terms of the cut, but no, it's like, uh, it's satirical. It's, it's hilarious. It's really introspective and existential and philosophical in a way that like, if you ever told me a Barbie movie would be that I would be like, no, that's not possible. Um, and so I was just kind of floored by how much at every turn there was another layer of kind of like intellectual discussion that's being, I don't want to say snuck into the film, like it's vegetables, right? <laughs> like, um, but, but that's, that's woven into the, of what's, what is at the end of the day, a really fun, flashy, funny movie that everyone can enjoy. Uh, it's just like highly entertaining and yet is so deep at the same time. And so for me, I was like, I walked out of that theater, theater, not only my face was hurting because like I had been smiling and laughing for two hours constantly. Cause I do agree. It is like with Antonio's 30 rock reference that it is just like joke after joke, after weird moment, after awkward existential moment. Right. Like, and it's like, and it just never lets up really uh, on that front. But I found that to be really, I, I was, my face hurt at the end, but I was really enjoying it. So, um, so yeah, I'm pretty high on both of these movies. I think if I had to pick one as the winner, it would probably be Oppenheimer. Um, but, but I'm, I'm in love with both of them. <laughs> and I, I, this, to say this in the non-spoiler part, um, two of the best final moments uh, in in movies in a long time, it, very different. But both the the final moments in both of these movies are perfect for the movie, uh, and like I, I think really accentuated the le leaving the theater feeling good about about what just happened. In my opinion, nice. All right, so we've sort of already dipped into recommendation algorithm. I don't know if we need to say much more. Um, but I guess maybe what I'll ask, because this this ties to another question that I had for the short take that we also didn't get to. But in terms of placing these films in the larger filmography, just what advice do you have? Like, does someone need to have seen Interstellar to appreciate things in Oppenheimer, right? Or similarly, does someone need to have seen Lady Bird or, Lady Bird or Little Women to appreciate things about Barbie? I mean, the only thing I'll say, no, I think the answer is no, you don't have to see the other movies to see this. Don't feel like you got to do homework um, for them. Uh, I think that the, 
you know, as, as Antonio said, and I think maybe we all sort of felt this, where they initially were like, there's going to be a Barbie movie. It was like, okay, it's directed by Greta Gerwig. It's like, oh, hello. Like, I'm interested. <laughs> so I think that, like, knowledge of uh, her filmography will get you, you know, would, would probably get you in the door. Um, but if at this point, if you, you know, haven't seen it, like, you've already been hearing Barbie's great. So, um, you know, it's, it's uh, yeah. you know, it's worth going in uh, and seeing it. I'll just say in terms of recommendation algorithm, Anyone who thinks that like like they don't want to see Barbie because Barbie is like for girls, um, they probably need to see Barbie. Like they're the ones who need to see it the most. I, I'm gonna. I agree with Greg. I, I hope that um, that people who watch Barbie go back and watch Lady Bird and especially Little Women, two movies that I absolutely love. Um, and um, and th- this trio of films, even though I put Barbie like third of, out of out of those three, um, I think. I, I love that that um, that the range of sort of uh, you know films that she's that she's you know stretching toward right like some of my favorite uh, direct like uh, last time I talked about Nicole Hall of Center but a lot of her films feel very similar right and so I know what I'm getting when I get one of her films um, with Greta Gerwig I just know it's going to be good <laughs> right <laughs> but I don't know I don't know what the aesthetic's going to be um, I, the writing will be sharp but but um, but that that she can make these three movies as successful as they are and as different as they are is a testament to just how exciting a director she is. If anything, it just makes me ex- incredibly excited for whatever comes next. Which is Chronicles of Narnia, in case you didn't know. Oh, I didn't know that. I didn't know that. Oh, She's all right. up for, for two Chronicles of Narnia films with Netflix. Amazing. Which I first was like, why why are we wasting Greta Gerwig on this? But now having seen Barbie, I'm like, oh, I'm just really excited to see what she does with <laughs> those stories. Get that bag, Greta. Yeah. Uh, they There are, I was going to mention, there are some quotes from her agent out in the media, which I don't know that you can ascribe to her really, but he was like, she's going to be the biggest director of all time and she knows exactly what she's doing and how dare you question her. And I kind of respect those quotes because... You know, I think we can name a mile long list of male directors who will go get that bank and, you know, do the one for them, one for me. Um, but I think this Barbie movie announces that she's a really big heavy hitter now. And if you didn't appreciate her before in the terms of like bank, I think studios will because that tends to be what they care about. And, um, you know, again, it seems like it was inevitable at this point, but go back like two years ago and tell yourself Greta Gerwig with a little help from Noah Baumbach are, is going to write a Barbie movie. And it just is still a weird sentence to hear uh, out in the world. So um, yeah, uh, I, I want to just put in my own interstellar hate doctor who did those plots way better 20 years ago than interstellar did. Uh, and so uh, I don't, think you should go back and rewatch all of Christopher Nolan's movies. If I had to pick one, it would be Dunkirk, which seems obvious in a lot of ways uh, because it's him in a kind of more serious register. I will say the internet is abuzz with the theory that Oppenheimer is an allegory for Christopher Nolan unleashing superhero movies on us with the Dark Knight. Uh, and that is a fantastic take. Um, I love and that. And the fact that it takes Iron Man himself to task as a part of that project 
uh, is kind of perfect. So, hey, maybe watch a Batman movie and then appreciate that they destroyed our cinema culture in so many ways <laughs> and, and read Oppenheimer in those ways. But uh, yeah, homework not required. But if you are somehow not uh, here, having not watched the Greta Gerwig filmography, um, I think last I saw both were very accessible on streaming. I think Canopy had them speaking as a privileged academic who can watch Canopy for free through our university library. Uh, you know, check them out. Public libraries also have access to Canopy. Check okay. your local library if you are not an academic uh, and listening <laughs> to this, if we have any of those uh, uh, <laughs> listener, listener members. Uh, I, I just want to say, Thank God the first version of How I Met Your Father didn't go. For the, for those uh, who may not know, there's uh, there was the TV show How I Met Your Mother. Um, during the last season of that show, they made a pilot of How I Met Your Father, which was going to be about like you know, the story of a woman, uh, etc. And that was to be played by Greta Gerwig. They did the pilot. Ah. Everyone was like, oh, of course this will go. It's like the next version of a really big show. And it wasn't picked up. And because she was free to not be on a CBS sitcom uh, for the whole year, she made Lady Bird. And then she made Little Women. And now she's made this. Um, so we are in a wonderful world where we're not in season nine of a, a mediocre CBS uh, spinoff um, where Greta Gerwig's wasting away, uh, you know, again, making a ton of money, but uh, our, our film culture is all the more richer because um, the network made a weird decision to not pick that up. I'll close out this conversation. We can move on to spoiler mode in a second with now that I'm hearing both of you talk about each director, I would say that, you know, yes, I agree that like technically there's no homework required. You can go both, go to both of these movies cold and, and enjoy them. But I'd say with I I would say that I would if you were to have time to watch something I would say watch Lady Bird or actually I think Little Women probably is a better primer for Barbie because of there's there's like some big monologues in there that I think I can see echo like she's iterated on and echoed in Barbie um, but but I feel like one of the most astounding things of Barbie is that her voice as a writer is so strong. And come cuts through. You can really hear her in the movie um, speaking through different the voices of different characters, and, uh, and and so I would say that like just to get if you are unfamiliar with Greta Gerwig's voice and kind of her point of view, then checking out probably I would say probably Little Women or or Lady Bird, whichever one appeals to you more, would just be a good get you get you. Like will help you appreciate, I think, the writing in in Barbie more. Um, yeah, so I think we are now ready to switch to spoiler mode. So if you've not seen either Oppenheimer or Barbie, please go have your own Barbenheimer experience. Learn from Greg's mistakes. Uh, make sure you don't go extremely back to back and tie yourself out. Uh, and uh, we are going to kind of, I think, with our, the way that we've set this up. We are going to kind of fluidly hop back and forth between both films. So if you've only seen one, but haven't seen the other and you don't want it spoiled, it's not safe for you from here on out. Uh, I know a lot of other podcasts that I've listened to have really segmented it. So they're like, okay, this time to this time we're talking about Barbie. This time to this time we're talking about Oppenheimer. We're not really going to do that. I think mostly be uh, partly because other podcasts have done that and i think it's the we have an opportunity here because it because of the barbenheimer experience to sort of think about them together um but also just for for efficiency's sake right so we're not kind of like we don't we don't spend an hour talking about oppenheimer and then never get to barbie <laughs> um so yeah so it this is this is your 
your exit stage left. Otherwise you're on your own. I'm going to count down from three, two, one. We're in spoiler mode. So we can freely start talking about, <laughs> about the fact that the, uh, they tested an atomic bomb at Oppenheimer, Oppenheimer, which was history. So it's technically not really should, should be a spoiler. Um, but I think today, since we've, we've kind of skipped the rhetorical situation a couple of in the, our past couple of reviews, I wanted to start there. And also, I think it just fits so nicely with the idea of Barbenheimer and how this like really strange phenomenon that just sort of like happened. Um, and to talk about kind of it just really begs a rhetorical analysis. And so I wanted to start there. So were there were there things that you what like? The first question I have on our list is like, who can claim authorship of Barbenheimer as a phenomenon? Um, it's me. And what does that tell You're us welcome. about? Thank you, studios. <laughs> you did it. Send the checks. <laughs> um, or just anything else that you can sort of see relating, like that we can relate from our knowledge of rhetoric and composition that can kind of apply to Barbenheimer as, as a weird pop culture phenomenon. I'll start. If, if these movies had been released like, two decades ago, this would be like a, cla a case of classic sort of counter programming, right? It's two movies with two distinct audiences. Um, and, and so that's why we're going to put them here because they're not going to cannibalize um, on, on one another's audiences. I think it says something about 2023 and this moment and tearing down of lines between traditional gender norms that these movies can appeal to many of the same moviegoers who are willing to put these wildly different films in, in conversation with one another. I think that's that's well said and exactly where I wanted to go. So I'm going to go there in an unexpected way. And I want to tread carefully because I am a cis white dude. Um, but uh, I had a gross family member and I hesitated as if they'd listen to this. They're not listening to this uh, kind of come up to me and it said something essentially like, well, if non-binary gender identities are a thing, why is it like so much more prominently prominent right now? And it's never been true historically, which is a gross statement. Right. And and so I rejected that statement. I was like, it's always been true. People just weren't allowed to express it or they did express it in a way that was more culturally acceptable there and so on. But the kind of longer answer I tried to give this person, uh, still treading carefully, is, um, you know, there's a way in which, and I think parents on this call will recognize it, they want to gender your kid from the second they are born. And I think a lot of uh, Gen Z who get to their teenage years just are rejecting the binary because it's been stuffed down their throat forever. And that's not to diminish their actual, perhaps, non-binary identity. But, you know... In my classes, I see 18, 19 year old guys going, uh, you know, full in the kind of stereotypical jocks still like wearing pink shirts and being like, yeah, it's all bullshit. Right. Sorry. Explicit tag. Uh, <laughs> and so I think everything Antonio just said is a part of that. It's like this is absolutely classic counter programming. And the joke at first was like, which are you going to be? And then it became everybody saying like, no, I'm both. And that's what's cool about being me. And that's what's cool about being alive right now. Um, there was a really fascinating map I saw and cannot share a link to, but people should Google, which it looked at the trending topics and where each of these movies had a stronger trending strength. And it was fascinating to see that Oppenheimer was kind of the, the north of the country and Barbie was the south. It wasn't a bi-coastal thing at all. It was, you know, it wasn't a red state, blue state thing, in other words. It was, it was there. And to me, that just showed that like, 
oh my god they tricked a whole bunch of the country into like taking your sweet candy coated medicine of some real harsh truths about patriarchy, which made me really excited. Uh, and you know, maybe I'm not saying the Northeast could have, couldn't have used that lesson from what I see around me, but, but all that is to say, I think, you know, there's a power to marketing. Um, I think of gentle minions, uh, perhaps as the, the <laughs> yes. other forebear of this, but like when you give something that people can make an Instagram post about and show their allegiance and how they're rejecting what, uh, society says they should fall neatly into, I think that gets really excited, particularly to Gen Z. I think our age was going to show up to these movies pretty much, you know, guaranteed, but I think maybe some of this phenomenon comes from pulling in those younger demographics and making it clear you need to see these both and you need to see them this first week, which um, nothing else this summer at least has been able to demonstrate to them. And and to you know maybe underline too much uh, what I what I agree fully with what both of you are saying is these are very coded movies as like traditionally male and traditionally female um, where you know I mean Barbie is this sort of you know it's it's hot pink uh, it's this it's a toy that has been you know only quote unquote only girls can play with it you know it it's um, for all the other ways in which. Um, Barbie can be can be critiqued, has been critiqued, is critiqued within the movie as a as an object, uh, as a as a cultural influence. You know, there there is uh, there there is a, a strain too of people who are like, oh, I wish I could have played with Barbies, but I couldn't because I was told by my elders. I'm a boy. I can't do that. And, you know, that's, that's, you know, both sort of traditional, uh, traditional, like, you know, cis, uh, uh, straight men, um, gay men, cis gay men, uh, and, and then trans women, uh, who, who are, uh, you know, looking back and being like, I, that's what I wanted to do, but I wasn't allowed to. Um, and then even within the movie Barbie in, uh, what Greg referenced, I think obliquely the, 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 the moment that probably cut the closest to the three men on this um, in terms of being like, Oh crap, I am a, I am a Ken uh, is the sort of film bro uh, uh, discussion of the film bro Kens. Um, And, you know, you could very easily, instead of the Godfather and it's Francis Ford Coppola's it's Coppola's aesthetic mixed with Robert Evans's use of, masterful use of the studio system or however uh, however that's phrased it could just as easily have been oh it's christopher nolan's uh you know ability to uh you know blah 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 with the with the timelines and the and the the, the mechanical plots like that could just as easily have been that so that is sort of very kind of dude uh, movie watcher uh, a film bro coded thing that like you know there's a new christopher nolan it's oppenheimer it's it's a great man doing a, a big thing um that you know like changed the world uh you know for better or for worse it's for worse uh and uh you know that 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 was sort of you know this this idea that's been been looming for a while so yeah the, the the this this mingling of no but it's not one or the other they actually interact you know but uh, in in a great way um you know i i do think it was just a when they were when they were picking the uh the the weeks or or they were scheduling things it was just kind of like oh we gotta yeah like it doesn't matter like the, these audiences will won't be compatible the the women will go see Barbie and the men will go see Oppenheimer. It'll be fine. Maybe I've seen some speculation that there was some degree of 
Christopher Nolan wanting to sort of undercut the big uh, Warner Brothers movie because he had left Warner Brothers because of the way that they released Tenet. So he liked like sort of holding his ground and like, I'll put my big uh, you know IMAX spectacle uh, a three hour biopic about a scientist, a mid century scientist, um, up against their movie to undercut it. Um, I don't know if that's true. I don't know if that's based on anything, but I do think that when it was set up, it was not designed to create this. This was a very sort of organic reaction from people. And I think that going forward, there's going to be a lot of attempts to recreate this chemistry, um, that will fail spectacularly. Um, uh, in the in the in in a classic uh, you know update on we're re-releasing Morbius in the theater because of the memes they're going to try to make <laughs> a new Barbenheimer with yeah, I don't know whatever um, uh, Mall Madness Stein um, with the Mall Madness Einstein movies coming out the same day <laughs> um, or whatever so uh, yeah I, I think there is something really organic and uh, joyful about that. Yeah, and I think it goes back to this question that I originally put in our doc about authorship, because in rhetoric, there's sort of this philosophy called social constructionism, which I'm saying that for I'm defining this for the benefit of our listeners, not all of us, right? <laughs> because we all are familiar <laughs> with it, I'm assuming. Uh, but the idea that that, you know, everybody contributes to the making of meaning, right? Like either through just like debate and discourse or kind of like in people's different interpretations of something, right? It could kind of mean a lot of different things. But I think that's, that's really what's proving PT's point here of they can't replicate it because it's not up to them, right? And I think Barbenheimer really did start as a marketing ploy, right? The studios being like, we put both of these movies on the same day and like, in the, you know, there might've been like, as you're saying, there might've been some like spite involved in that <laughs> against Christopher Nolan. Um, uh, but, but it really was the internet and sort of fans that sort of like took over. Right. And they were the ones that kind of contributed the Barbenheimer aspect to it. Right. This, I, and you know, and including all the things that everybody just said. So so I do think that that makes it out of their control that they can't just decide, oh, we're just going to do Barbenheimer every time, right? Because it's not going to work. There's some there's something that has to happen organically through through the internet, through fans. Um, you know, someone has to take that first step to make the first meme, and then it has to go viral, right? Um, so yeah, it's really interesting to think about just like, but but then it's going to get really annoying if they if they tr do try to replicate it, which I, I agree inevitably they're going to and that uh this like idea of counter programming is going to kind of probably be a lot more commonplace in the hopes that it would catch will catch again um did it, does anyone have any good bits from the internet that they want to share in terms of like what was your the best barbenheimer meme or artwork or something like that that you saw I mean, there was so much good fan art that it would be hard to describe. But to me, when you're talking about social construction, you're talking about that. All of those images did way more to promote these two movies than even, you know, the kind of early Barbie meme thing that that did go very viral when it debuted sometime in February, I think. But it was people who brought the two together and had fun doing the split screen posters or the combination of the two um, and 
you know, I think that's what's going to, you know, be what this will be remembered for more than any specifics from either film. Um, I want to embrace that, but also throw it back to PT's comment when you you mentioned the people who weren't allowed to play with Barbies, which I think is very smart. And uh, the one to me that stood out is I had the and I'm going to say this seriously, the distinct pleasure of using a urinal next to, uh, I believe, identified as a man, a man dressed in the full Barbie pink cowboy girl outfit with all the fringe. And I was like, this guy is so fabulous. And he is here just owning it. And I have no idea who he was there with. It didn't matter. To me, he was a a man there by himself who's just like, you didn't let me play with Barbies. And guess what? I'm fabulous and I'm going to own it. And it just made me so happy that like, you know, that society is in a place where our meaning construction is like Barbie's not for girls, Barbie's whatever we want. We can all wear pink. We can all do that. And I, I, I'm not going to be so naive and Pollyannish just to jump feminist icons. I don't know. That doesn't really count. Uh, but uh, I'm not going to be so Pollyannish to say everybody everywhere in the country could do that. But I was in a privileged place, even in a fairly conservative suburb of of Boston, where that guy could be that guy. And I'm so glad I got to witness him being that guy and I'm a better person for it. And and so I really think like fans are going to own this experience and um, that's what's going to be that. That's what's never going to be replicated again, no matter how hard they try. I want to give a shout out to, there was a guy at my screening who had a pink bucket hat and a velour pink tracksuit, and then pink sunglasses. He looked great. Uh, and so, and, and then he had a, and then, and then I saw, I think I saw him wandering around the lobby by himself. And then when we got into the, and then this was for, for Oppenheimer, <laughs> which is great. Um, like, uh, and then, and then when, yeah. And then when we got into the theater, there was a, another guy, um, that had, that was dressed as Oppenheimer. He had the fedora, the suit everything so yeah i think it's just and and so like to 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 shift gears to kind of thinking about this in an industry context i think like this has been the big question of like our theaters dying and the answer really seems to be we'll just make going to the movies an experience right and like a lot of for a long time right you know you know um as a long time listener of the big picture a long time for a long time that narrative has been event movies right so like a mar- but like endgame like a big marvel movie a tentpole blockbuster that's what's getting people to go to the movies and not everything else everything else is dying but i think this is a great example of no it really doesn't it doesn't have to do with the type of movie necessarily right because neither of these two movies are are marvel movies or bi- like yes barbie is an ip but it's not an ip that we've seen movies for for years or something like that right um uh and that it's really how do we find ways and maybe this is just the next evolution of movie going where where this this type of thing uh, become makes it makes it a fun experience. So people will want to go out to the movie theater again. Um, yeah. The other thing I want to pick up on is the the sort of like gender dynamics. And I think that it's really interesting that these two films, once you actually see them, are really in conversation with each other about gender and the one of the biggest criticisms i've heard about oppenheimer is that christopher oh christopher nolan still doesn't know how to write female characters right that 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 um i know a bunch of us were fans of emily blunt in this movie but she does have a pretty minor part still florence Pugh. that's where i agree with the critics of like 
the female characters were terrible in this. I think Florence Pugh was really underwritten, underused. Her scenes were, I think, the my least favorite parts of the movie, and it felt like they were in there for the wrong reasons, and um, and all that kind of stuff. And so it's really interesting to think about, like, you know, if, if it's like I think I can't remember where I heard this or where I read this, but that Oppenheimer is the world where the Kens win, right? And <laughs> um, and, and uh, and so to think about the sort of discussion of patriarchy in Barbie and then go back to Oppenheimer and, and to think about his, how his, like the, the confirmation of that historically, <laughs> um, I think is really, it creates a really, and so, so people who would kind of pick a side, quote unquote, right. The, the people who aren't embracing both and saying I'm both, because there are those people. I was at the Oppenheimer screaming with lots of film bros, um, lots of Nolan heads who were like, had no plans to see Barbie probably. And, and so the idea that if they are going to, if, if an Oppenheimer person quote unquote is going to then go see Barbie because they want to participate in the Barbenheimer experience, that's really great because they're going to be exposed to a lot of ideas probably. And a lot, and just like a type of movie that, that they probably had would not have otherwise been open to. And I think that's, that in general is a very like nice, happy thing. I agree. I mean, I, I, we exist where we're, we all work in academia. We exist in an environment where like feminism and patriarchy are central parts of our discourse. But for a lot of people, it isn't right. And the the millions of people who are watching this movie, um, that 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 Barbie and Oppenheimer can spark conversations about these issues, but ground them in something you know familiar. I, I alluded to like this. Um, I'm not going to go scene by scene, but but I do feel like we should talk about the America Ferrera monologue um, mm-hmm. and, and Barbie, um, which uh, I think I read an article that Greta Gerwig told America Ferrera that like Meryl Streep, it was like a Meryl Streep, Meryl Streep wanted to to deliver this. Like, that's how much she loved the writing of this of this moment. And, um, you know, I, I, I talked to like a friend who um who was less bullish on 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 Barbie um who who was also team Oppenheimer more more solidly team Oppenheimer over Barbie um but because he thought that that a lot of the um the the central themes were discussed so sort of explicitly and without and, and not as artfully as he would have liked and I don't know to, for me you know again we're we're talking about a movie that's based on a doll <laughs> right and and so I, I don't know how what what kind of nuance. I, I, there wasn't much nuance that I expected from it. The fact that 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 monologue existed, that it made sense, that it like moved me, and um, but that it also made sense in the context of the movie, I thought was a minor miracle. Um, and and uh, and it makes me really happy that all of these people are going to hear that, um, right? And that um, and um, you know it, it was used to sort of like arm the Barbies, right? To to like to deprogram them in the context of the movie. Um, but the 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 idea that 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 this can st- like start a conversation with like a mother and a daughter, um, uh, it 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 just warms my heart and makes me so 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 joyful. I cried during that monologue. It really, it really hit me hard. Um, and I feel like it thematically it ties together sort of the feminism aspect of the movie and just like the Barbie, the toy part of the movie as well, because to me, the whole idea behind that monologue is right. The reason in the story, in the plot, the reason she's saying it, as you're saying, is to deprogram the Barbies. But specifically, she says, if we articulate the cognitive dissonance, right, that that robs 
the patriarchy of its power right of the like right. you can you can't you can you have to be this but you also have to be this right like and that's what the whole monologue is structured around all of these kind of like paradoxes of like a bit of womanhood and i feel like that also is what greta gerbig's doing with barbie in the movie right barbie as an icon barbie as a toy barbie as a pop culture phenomenon right it, she's saying look like barbie can be at, at on the one hand feminists and an inspiration to little girls and like a way for and boys and right like all the kids who who should be able to play with them that 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 will inspire them and so they they live in a they live in barbie land they live in a world where there are no limitations to what they can do but then on the other hand barbie is also what of the and i'm not gonna remember her name uh america ferrera's daughters in the movie what she's her her spit takes to or not spit take that's the wrong word um her her kind of indictment of barbie is also true right uh and so to me that was greta gerg when she was approaching she's like okay they're asking me to make a barbie movie how do i make this in a way that like i can sleep at night basically right um and that that we have this this discourse surrounding is barbie barbie a feminist figure or an anti-feminist figure and that she's sort of saying like i want to articulate the cognitive distance of that to rob the patriarchy of its power right that like that if if i make a movie about barbie that sort of shows that she is both of these things at once um and to explore why uh that that will that will make a that will make this a barbie movie that we can feel good about watching or that she could feel good about making i assume that's me presuming a lot about greta gerwig but <laughs> um but yeah, to me, that was the movie's brilliance was that it was like everything, everything made sense together. And like she even at the by the end of the movie managed to loop back to the patriarchy victimizes men, too. Right. Mm -hmm. Because there's like and like that was the only purpose I really saw for the Will Ferrell character <laughs> was at the end where he can have the <laughs> otherwise. I don't know. Like like yeah. his scenes were the ones that worked the least for me where I was just like all of the Mattel corporate stuff. I probably probably I probably could have done without like I don't think that's that's really that necessary other than the fact that Mattel partly made this movie right? <laughs> like or they were involved in this movie. Um, uh, but, you know, he has that moment at the end where he's he's like, I really wish. Like he expresses like frustration with the pressure of masculinity of like I've like I, I really like they end up tickling each other I think is the end point mm -hmm. <laughs> that way where he's like I really wish it were socially acceptable for men to tickle each other or something like that um uh but and and so yeah I thought that that was the brilliance of the movie is that it was in articulating and and this theme of 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 articulating the cognitive distance I don't know how we got there but that's that's my. Just again, since this is rhetorical situation, didn't you just articulate social constructivism, right? Yes. The, the Barbie is both because it has to be both. It has to be the push and pull because it means all these things to all of us that are different. And so um, and it, included in that is probably, a, you know, a good chunk of the audience that Barbie doesn't really mean that much to. Like I've spent so little time thinking about Barbie in my life and yet have been shaped and warped by the same processes that that silly little doll or that very important doll maybe uh you know put out into the world and shaped and are a part of that so um i just i i i think the monumental achievement of all that you both just articulated is so important and can't 
be underestimated, especially as kind of a Trojan horse to the people who need to hear it, right? And so uh, that I, I alluded in the, the short take to the friend who texted me. Friend has not been able to get tickets to Barbie yet. Is a giant Matchbox 20 fan. And so came across the soundtrack. And now Jen knows exactly the friend I'm talking about, too. And so uh, then sent me the file of Ryan Gosling singing Push and said, oh, my God, this makes me so much more excited to see this movie. This is going to be perfect. And my first response was, oh, God, you shouldn't see this movie. And my second response was, of course, Oh God, you really need to see this this movie. And and I said, like, there's a real like it's gonna hurt you. And PT is right. I was alluding to the Godfather joke because I, I'm gonna forget the exact dialogue. But when the the Ken says back essentially like, Oh, and it's even better if we watch it while I'm talking the whole time. I was like, oh no. <laughs> like, how many t- times have I inflicted my own commentary on my poor long-suffering wife as we watch a movie right uh the old joke about the shot in lord of the rings where vigo mortensen actually breaks his toe and how every film bro points and is like did you did you know in that take that that's where he actually broke his toe but he held it together and the take made the movie it's like that that is so perfect that i can feel like deeply called out by that movie but actually appreciate the medicine it's serving me um, as a part of it. And, it. and that's just, that's unbelievable. Like the fact that you could do that. Um, and, and I would kind of throw that back to the group and ask, is it, is it that Greta Gerwig is around our age? I think she's maybe a little older than most of us, but, or maybe a little younger. I don't actually know, but her humor is so based in like nineties culture. Like it's push, right? There are so many songs that that could be, but she chooses push and that immediately evokes our type and our generation. I think that has a real power. And maybe that's the parents who are going to see this are, are, are understand that a little better. And, and would, uh, I don't know, a 50 something say like, well, this isn't really about me. Don't worry about it. (laughs) I think that there's definitely some additional resonance for us because like we know Matchbox 20, we know the Indigo Girls. So like those like immediately mean something to us in a way that like if my parents see this, they're going to be like, I don't know what that is. Uh, Greg, I'm glad you also know a, a, a big legitimate Matchbox 20 fan, <laughs> Mike Bunn in shambles. I have no idea if he's going to be able to see this. If he I sees this movie, what his, what his reaction will be. Um, but, but he look, also really likes the OC. So I feel like he, he contains multitudes. Like you know. He does. But I, I, I think that he will. I, I, I bet that his takeaway from the movie is they did Rob Thomas dirty. Like, I really think that's going to be the first thing he says if and when uh, I, I hear from him about the experience of seeing it. Tiny, tiniest of sidebars. Said friend saw Rob Thomas in concert as I think it's Matchbox 20 that's touring right now on Sunday. And Push was dedicated to Ryan Gosling. So Rob all Thomas right. and Matchbox 20 are either in on the they're joke on or they're laughing all the way to the bank. Like, do what you want. <laughs> we get money. So, like, go ahead and make fun of us. I also, I also did post. see... Um, that uh, one of the other and and I, I I did get I got hit by this I don't know if the the other two gentlemen on this call will feel this way um, the film bro one was the hardest the sort of the Snyder cut Godfather <laughs> one two punch uh, there also was the guy listening to pavement 
who was like, well, this is really Steve uh, Malcolmus uh, really channeling Lou Reed. You need to listen to this part uh, as he talks over the music. Um, and I did see Pavement uh, make reference to it as like, you know, we like jokingly be like, you know, we, we request no comments from people uh, while we process uh, this reference. If if Warner Brothers would like to sponsor this post, please contact me, um, which, you know, was was funny. Um, but uh, but yeah, I, I I agree with what all of you are saying about uh, sort of the, the, the lesson coming through. I, I, I do think I, I, I have heard from some people who are in more academic circles that were like, this was all a little didactic. This was a little feminism 101. Like this was pretty like simple, um, which, you know, I, I think even the people saying that recognize that like they are soaked in it all a little bit more. So of course this feels like uh, intro to these topics because it is the introduction to these topics for a lot of people. Um, and so I think that smuggling that into a mainstream now, you know, half a billion dollar grossing uh, in the, you know, within the first week uh, movie is great. Um, and that's really good. And it's pissed off the right people who should be pissed <laughs> off uh, all the time uh, about society passing them by. Um, and that's, and that's good. Um, I think there was a degree of, uh, and again, this is sort of my fault of hearing so the hearing sort of the the talk from people before I saw it of just like it's so smart and it really gets all these things across. Um, that I was a bit like, oh, okay, like that's that's it, like that's all you're doing, which is totally what a what a what a white dude thing to do. Um, in response to this movie, I'm like, oh, you didn't do more, okay. Um, but uh, but I yeah. So again, I do think a second viewing of this movie down the road, I'll be like, oh man, yeah, this is this is like deftly handling all of this, even when it's so it is sort of like almost directly lecturing, it is doing a great job of uh, getting that across in a way that's fun. Cause I think the thing that works so well uh, beyond just the, the, the content of the, the big monologue, the America for monologue is that so emotional and moving. And then as the scenes unfold and it becomes, yes, this is the, 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 tool we have to deprogram people that recognizing the dissonance it becomes more and more of a joke while still being true like it becomes played humorously um so you get to sort of like release some of that emotional sort of feeling that's built up by laughing at the kens and also kind of like still getting like punched with like jesus yes that is another uh another truism um and then you get the um you know the, the different sort of uh bro uh bro types that are being uh tapped into so yeah i think it does really it does really handle those things well so I know this is from a while back, but to answer Greg's question about Greta Gerwig's age, she is actually about to turn 40 in a few weeks. Ah. August 4th, August 4th, is, August 4th, 1983 was her birthday. So happy uh, birthday, 83. That's Gemini yeah. and Greta Gerwig dead on. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I do, I do think to answer your question, there is going to be a generational sweet spot for this film. Not just because of all the 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 ref the cultural references that we're talking about, but because of the actual Barbie references. Uh, so mm. my friend, uh, shout out to my friend Brittany, who may or not may not be listening to this, <laughs> uh, um, who went to go see it with me. Uh, she, so I I I'm you know I don't want to presume, but I'm going to pre- I'm going to say that I pro- out of the four of us, I probably played with Barbies the most as a child. Um, 
but uh, I'm, most of my Barbies were Disney Barbies, which for for all of you probably tracks like that. That shouldn't be a surprise. Um, and I did have some uh, some stereotypical Barbies, um, but my friend Brittany had like she she could recognize every single outfit <laughs> and every right single on. accessory and every single toll every the all the all the kind of um playhouse stuff and like like she, she for her it was so joyful because it was like bringing back all these references to her childhood and i do actually really like that aspect of the movie where they really dug deep into like the barbie archives um to, to include and, and give a shout out like over like the history of Barbie and kind of all the, and especially like all, a lot of the discontinued models <laughs> and all that stuff. I think that was really fun. Um, but I do think that there there's, there's going to be people who, even if they are on board with the message, the political messaging of the film and kind of what it's like, what it, it's, it's thesis and what it's trying to kind of get off its chest. Um, thematically i feel like just you could you could easily just appreciate the level as like a, a the film as like a nostalgia experience alone um that's not to say that people will necessarily because i think it's hard to isolate that part of it but i think that it does it does really well it checks that box really well as well so i think for me i think it's like it does a really good job of engaging with barbie fans um like i i had and and my daughter in her room now has it. Uh, I have the yellow rollerblades, <laughs> like the little, <laughs> and so there. So I, I, did, I wasn't recognizing every single thing that we that we saw in the movie, but I there was enough for me. And actually, I thought a lot of the creative geni- genius of this movie was how everyone everything is constructed like actual toys. So like when she mm-hmm. opens the fridge, it's just like a flat, mm-hmm. <laughs> flat, flat image, right? And then like at the end, I was like, "Why is everybody waving so weirdly?" And I'm like, "Oh, it's because Barbies can't bend their wrists, so they have to like <laughs> go like this." Um, uh, and so like little stuff like that that I thought was so such a great attention to detail. Um, and you know, when we get to Oscars, watch it a little bit. You know, production design, I feel like absolutely has to be in the conversation for this movie. Um, and and just to that point, it, it comes down to the scale. So Barbie's height to her house is a little different than a human to a human house. And so literally everything in Barbie world is done. I, I forget the exact ratio, but it's slightly small. So Margot mm-hmm. Robbie looks big in her car. You're like, that's not what a human would look like in her car. <laughs> right. and it's exactly Barbie the proportions. Barbie scale. I, I was shocked to hear, and just in terms of production design, there's no CG in Barbie Land. I believe. I think it's all yep. like actually practically constructed materials. So unbelievable. Yeah, amazing. So I feel like we've been talking about Barbie a lot. Is there something <laughs> we want to focus in on for Oppenheimer? Like, was there a particular? Because we were. I think this all started with with Antonio bringing up the America Fur monologue. So is there something like that in Oppenheimer? A key scene? A key? aspect of it that we want to give a shout out to well i i think that the uh the the element that has been i don't want to say divisive but i that i think we are in agreement with uh or at least the three of us who brought it up um is the last hour so there's you know i i, I don't think i'm alone in i was assuming yeah well like the climax of the movie will be the trinity test like that will be the timelines either will converge there or at least the timeline that is the los alamos story is going to build up to that so when that happened i think before the two hour mark it was like oh okay so like now now what are we doing and when it suddenly becomes the actually the antagonist 
has been Robert Downey Jr. this whole time. Um, you know, he's the one who sort of post-war has been pulling the strings behind the scenes. Um, you know, I I don't know if necessarily, you know, there's obviously the scene where that is revealed when he's talking to Alden Ehrenreich. Uh, and, and it's clear that it's like, yeah, yeah I, like I did all this. Like I set it all up. Um, you know, I, I don't know if it has the same sort of, crucial central impact to the movie that the America Ferrera monologue does in Barbie. Um, but I think that that pivot and that change to it, you know, not just being sort of man versus the clock or, you know, America versus uh, the, the Axis powers um, or, or, you know, that's uh, man- America Ferrera fighting the Axis powers, right? right exactly. <laughs> um, uh, it was, um, it, yeah, it's her parachuting onto Normandy, uh, you know, pointing out the patriarchy. Um, but uh, but yeah, like I, I think that, you know, it, that's the pivot to it's it's a man in, in for like the pettiest of reasons trying to destroy another man. Um, you know, I mean, I, I guess he has his petty motivations, but there's also the sort of the wider motivation of, the military industrial complex wanting to forge ahead with, no, no, we wanted an arms race. We want to keep uh, expanding this. We want to build on this uh, power and, and have more and more bombs. And the person who did it being like, no, 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 this is, this is a bad idea. Like, like Batman creating a, a surveillance system uh, in the dark night and then being like, it has to immediately be destroyed, um, which is, always been a wonky part of the dark Knight, but it is interesting the parallel of like right that's what oppenheimer wanted was like we did this once we should never do this again like now we have to stop it like we had to do it because it was this existential threat but now this is this is going to create the new existential threat if we don't stop it i just want to not necessarily answer that but to say um that i don't know if it needed an answer anyway enough preamble uh that uh like so much of uh, that last piece to me feels like this is a COVID movie. Um, you know, there's been a lot of talk in the industry about how we're responding to this kind of earth shaking event that we've all been through. And, you know, um, when we talk through Asteroid City, like that's clearly a COVID movie because the idea of a military imposed uh, quarantine, sorry if people are, am I spoiling Asteroid City? Uh, just throwing punches left and right to the poor Wes Anderson fans who waited six weeks. Um, but uh, I, it just felt very much to me like the themes that came out of this were that it felt to me that it was interrogating the relationship between politics and science and particularly the regards in which both of those disciplines for lack of a better term, use progress, right? That science is meant to create progress and politics, you know, so often debates how much progress, how little, like how, you know, are we pushing forward? Are we pulling back? Liberal, conservative, roughly speaking. And so it felt to me like this became very much a debate about how do science and politics interact and what damage is done when we let science get politicized but yet at the same time also saying there's no pure science without politics, right? The the Josh Hartnett, uh, uh, Oppenheimer debate from the beginning, it's like the classroom shouldn't be a political space. The classroom is always a political space. And the fact that that's so uh, relevant to right now, kind of culturally, but also into the COVID moment just felt to me like it gave this a real power that I wasn't expecting. I don't think I was expecting to interrogate my professional life in Oppenheimer 
just just as much as I thought, like, well, I'm a I'm a good woke dude. I'm not going to interrogate my manhood in uh, Barbie. And boy, was it a rough night at the movies, I guess is what I'm saying. So. Um, I've also seen people comparing or or saying that that Oppenheimer can also be an allegory for AI to bring it back to the strike like that, mm. that the questions of like, is AI something we're going to unleash and then regret later? Right. And then once it's out, we can't put it back in the box. Um, so, yeah, I think to me, this movie was the the most sophisticated when it was engaging with history and subjectivity um, to build on. Because I, I totally agree with everything you just said, Greg, in terms of like science and politics and like all that stuff was there for me, too. But to me, what elevated this by the end and i think it, a lot of this comes to fruition in the to, to go back to what we were saying about the what pt was saying about the last act or the last hour a lot of the the sort of like subjectivity of history comes to the fore once you realize that oh the the it's not just black and white and color because christopher nolan's having fun switching back and forth or like you know like it's it's like there are these two there are these two accounts, these two sort of points of view that are colliding, right? Um, and a big connection that I actually saw to Barbie, to my point earlier about the articulating the cognitive dissonance, I feel like there's a degree to which Nolan does that here as well, because there's in and again, this circles back to Robert Downey Jr. So this is why I thought of this originally. Because mm. um, Robert Downey Jr.'s character, Stra Straws, um, and I've heard lots of podcasters still call him Strauss. And I'm like, is that an intentional like jab or, <laughs> or are we just not remembering that was a huge part of the movie? Um, but Strauss says in his like big monologue against Oppenheimer is like, he's, he loved playing the martyr, right? Like he wanted to be the one who's in control. This is all about him and his ego, right? It's not about him caring about humanity. It's about, uh, and, and so, so what I loved is that the film in terms of its treatment of Oppenheimer did sort of a similar cognitive distance thing of like both both can be true he can both feel guilty about what has happened and be morally kind of like advocating for what's right but he can also that does not excuse what he did or like it doesn't mean he, he wasn't ambitious and let his ambition sort of an ego and desire to control this and like turn it into a like no i created i was the father of the atom bomb i don't want h-bombs not because they'll be bad, but because like the atom bomb was the thing I created, not the age bomb, right? Like, um, and, and so it's really interesting kind of in his, the treatment of him as a historical figure, I've heard a lot of criticism of like, this is still glorifying him and kind of making him the hero. I don't agree with that at all. I feel like the film definitely approaches him more as this complicated figure. So I don't know what, what were, what were your thoughts about uh, like sort of like Oppenheimer as a historical figure in this movie? Well, I think that the what you were just sort of saying about the, the cognitive dissonance and the way he maybe uh, existed with uh, sort of the good intentions and then also the sort of bad, uh, uh, maybe bad motivations or, or even like sort of bad behavior, I think ties in interestingly with the most trenchant criticism, which is the women characters in the movie, uh, as, as, as you said earlier, and as does ha is a pattern in Christopher Nolan movies because the way he treats the women in his life is a similar sort of like 
well, I got to go and do this thing. And he's just kind of rolling over them. And, and, you know, with the Florence Pugh character, kind of like, I'm going to dip back into your life when I need something from you. Uh, and, uh, and then, you know, he feel, he looks very conflicted and he feels a little, you know, put off. And she says something like, you know, you come and go as you please. Uh, and you only show up when you need something like that's power. Like that's the power you have. Uh, over me, um, which does not mean that she's a well-written character or well-executed, um, and and you know does still sort of position the women to exist exclusively as a reflection of or a a sort of tool through which the story of a man is being told, um, which is not great uh, and not ideal. And don't worry, uh, folks who haven't seen Oppenheimer but are listening to the spoilers, there is a woman <clears throat> who's fridged to make uh, uh, to make a man feel a certain way. Um, but, uh, which is historically accurate, but still, uh, is, is a, is a thing Nolan loves to do. Are we supposed to think that she might've been murdered? That's again, uh, you know, the, uh, unknown truth. There is one shot that looks like, um, she's, she's being, uh, Pushed, right? by, yeah. by mm. someone. Yeah. One of the shots shows that, but the other ones don't. So it's, <laughs> it's unclear. I mean, I think that's, that's intentionally ambiguous. Since we're bringing up the female characters, I will say the one time the audience in Oppenheimer laughed, and I laughed too, was the moment when um, uh, Emily Blunt's character is receiving the the scientist who who betrayed um, Oppenheimer and um, and refuses to give her hand, right? Because she makes a big deal, like you shook his hand, you shook his hand. Um, and so that was the one moment where like everyone in the audience was like, oh, good. Right. And and like what's interesting about Emily Blunt's character, too, is that she um, I, I have a few issues with how, how that character is written, too, because I think three times she says a line, you have to fight. You should fight. Right. Um, and um, um, but you do kind of want him to fight. <laughs> right. Like <laughs> because you have this antagonist. And and so. So, so she. So, I think that part of the reason that we have an affection for her in that moment, that we laugh and that we like her in that moment, especially, is because um, she's she's displaying the anger that we wish that that uh, Oppenheimer would in, in in those scenes too, right? So, um, so that that's why you know I thought well maybe she's the character that I'm supposed to sort of latch onto, but I couldn't quite latch onto her because I feel like there wasn't enough to to her for me to um for for her to be the entry point into the movie for me yeah i think a lot of that is and i don't want to take credit for this i think i heard someone on next best picture say this but that there's just so so much time jumping with her that in in terms and and because the movie is about oppenheimer and kind of as sort of pt was was saying like his his priorities are not necessarily the women in his life, right? That like that inevitably her storyline doesn't get a lot of screen time. And, but they're saying that like, you know, a lot, of, a lot of, I think a lot of critics who have a big problem with her the way her character is written. And I didn't have as much of a problem, but I definitely see the points that, that it's because we go from her being an alcoholic, like, and not being able to handle taking care of their child and like all, you know, all the kind of stuff. And then, and then we go from that to her being like really witty and snide to the process, like not prosecutor, the, and I can't remember the actor's name either, though I know his face. <laughs> the, when she's being kind of cross-examined. Thank you. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, that's that she kind of has her like, I'm really, I'm smarter than I'm the smartest one in the room kind of moment. Right. Um, and that there was just not enough in between those kind of points, checkpoints 
to really develop her as a character. And I can I can see that point. But at the same time, do I want more Oppenheimer and Kitty fights at home? Not not really. Like, I don't really I don't know. I don't really. I, that movie seems less interesting to me. That seems much more t- stereotypical biopicy to me. But I think that's, that's also the. That's also the issue of there's only two women characters out of a cast of like 30 male characters. Uh, And so the fact that we only get a total of maybe like eight or nine minutes of screen time with Emily Blunt with one scene that only lasts maybe a minute and a half where she's really asserting herself, which is what we all love. Like the, the, uh, you know, the text thread with uh, Jed and Greg, um, we were blowing up immediately with the, like, that was the takeaway after the movie. It was just like that Emily Blunt scene was great. Um, but it was only one scene and it was a pretty short scene. Um, you know, there's a lot of the other actors had a similar like one moment, uh, but there were a lot of dudes and there's only a couple of women and only one of the women had a good scene. Um, no, no disrespect to Florence Pugh. She was doing what she could. Um, but, uh, but yeah, that's, so I, I think that that, you know, imbalance is worth noting. It's interesting in the context of Christopher Nolan. And again, you go back to the rhetorical situation of uh, Barbenheimer. It, it's thrown even more into relief when the other big movie of the moment is about, the, the the sort of second class nature of women in society and the patriarchy. Mm. Boy, PT, you just totally erased nameless female scientist who was present in the background of like five scenes. So way to be, way to be. Uh, it's true. She did. I remember that she did showed they, up and hired her right name. Away. I they don't say, recall. Did they say her name? I um, I latched on to her because I had one of those things where I was like, I know that actress. What do I know her from? And so I kind of like found her in a lot of the scenes, but I don't think she even talked in the majority of scenes she was in. So. Uh, her character's name, of course, was Lily Hornig, um, oh, played yeah. by Olivia Thrillby, uh, who was in Dread, the really good version of Dread <laughs> from like a decade ago. She was the other judge with Carl Urban's Judge Dread. Oh, <laughs> Okay. Um, I I only wanted to add to give voice um, to one of the objections I think to it. So uh, again, uh, this is something I want to track on my inevitable rewatch of Oppenheimer. The director Christopher Nolan is saying that the colored scenes are meant to be Oppenheimer's perspective, and the black and white are meant to be objective. What? So. That's that's what he's saying. So if you watch the color scenes, those are the ones where women are treated particularly poorly. And so there's a defense of that to say that we are just experiencing that through Oppenheimer's lens. Um, I have a lot of problem with that as a defense because it's like, oh, look, I just happened to find a narrative way to treat female characters the way I've always treated female characters. And that's problematic in and of itself. Um, you know, my wife and I went through this uh, rewatching West Wing where you're like, wow, these dudes who work in the White House are really misogynist. And then you're like, oh, wait, the dudes who worked in the White House in the 90s would be misogynist. Like how much how much is text and how much is context? And I, I think, you know, um, we all have to debate that ourselves, I think, more than than come down on one side or the other. But I do think that it's worth noting that part of the problem is the fact that Oppenheimer was a dude working in a world of dudes who didn't care about the women. And, you know, when they revealed the third affair, I was like, another one? Like, uh, like, <laughs> whoa. And one that, you know, seemingly was so meaningless to him, it didn't get screen time, really. It was like, oh, well, if, if those scenes are his perspective, then 
Like, look how disposable women were to him. That, to me, becomes a way to further scrutinize him while also conveniently just aligning this film with a lot of other problematic practices. So, And you just found a fourth female character. That's right. The, the oh, other yeah. wife <laughs> he had an affair with. And so. the brother's <laughs> wife, who he didn't like and kind and of couldn't remember her name. Off. Was a yeah. communist. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So many nameless women in this movie. He's really done it. <laughs> between between Oppenheimer, uh, you know, the the, the character, uh, and also the, the movie having to sort of be a, a uh, making a, a a line between well, like the 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 theories of communism were engaging and interesting, but the actual American Communist Party uh, was was a problem and not something I wanted to be associated with. Uh, and critiques, I, I have seen very quiet, like, corners of the internet critiques of, like, Barbie's actually just, like, white girl, uh, neoliberal feminism uh, from people like Margot Robbie and Kate McKinnon, who loved Hillary Clinton and didn't like real uh, progressive change, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Like, hardcore, crappy leftists out there are having a bad weekend. Like, it's just not good for them. The, the, the tankies of the world are, are bums at the theaters. On that note, let's talk about Oscars. I do want to, you know, because we are getting towards the end. I want to make sure we, because there actually is stuff to talk about for once. (laughs) I feel like we've had a a long stretch of of very enjoyable blockbusters that have no Oscars hope prospects whatsoever. And so it's nice to have have some more Oscar contenders enter the chat. Um, So... We can start with either one or kind of go, you know, go go by category even. But like, I guess maybe my first question is, which film do you think gets more nominations? And then that might segue into which nominations and which categories. Oppenheimer because of dudes. <laughs> That's That does just seem to be a running theme of this episode. <laughs> Can't run the world. Right? Yeah. Um I would say Oppenheimer will probably get a higher number because I think Oppenheimer will be more appreciated below the line. Um, mm. I see it in the all quiet lane from this past year where it's mm. like because it's a serious movie that happens to do visual effects and sound design and cinematography and all that stuff really well. I see it getting a lot of nominations down there that bulk up the number. But I think there's a compelling case for Barbie getting more of the kind of prestige above the line nominations. Interesting. I, I, I don't know if I th- would think that Barbie would get more above the line nominations. I see a path where Oppenheimer gets way more nominations. Barbie wins more um, because Ooh. Barbie might lock down like, you know, two or three wins. And Oppenheimer could be in that uh, Fableman's Irishman zone where it's the movie that's been you know comes out and people are like well this is clearly like a front runner and everyone kind of thinks there's the front runner for a while and by the time we get to january february people are like yeah i don't know oppenheimer whatever um like there's it's sort of old news by the time voting actually happens and it doesn't really win anything or support consolidates around one award such as Best Supporting Actor for Robert Downey Jr. Uh, and it's like, well, cool, that'll be the Oppenheimer Award. Mm. And we don't have to give it, to, you know, th- these other things to the other, like, seven or eight or nine nominations it got um, will will can go to something else. Yeah, I don't know. I'm more inclined to think it'll go bigger because it is not only traditional Oscar bait because of its subject matter, 
but it's also good. <laughs> so, you know what I mean? Like, so if like, I'm just thinking if something like Elvis can get as far as it did, right? Like then this surely will do better. Um, so I feel like I, I'm, I'm willing at this point and granted, yeah, I like your point about, you know, can, it can sprint, but can it win the marathon of Oscar season? Uh, especially with the strike kind of probably complicating a lot of releases and stuff like that. But uh, the the question is like, will it, will it go all the way with like, cause I definitely think it's, it's at minimum going to be sound editing, like the, like sort of Greg was saying those below the line categories score. Oh my gosh, the score of this movie is so good. Um, <laughs> it was so stressful <laughs> because of the score. Um and, but at the but at the same time, I feel like it can also go all the way. Probably Nolan and director, best picture. Like I feel like it can, it has it has potential to make it into all of those bigger categories as well. Antonio, what do you think? Yeah, I so I have them actually for the above the line categories fairly even. I have them both as as probably nominated for picture, director maybe. Um, lead actress for Barbie, lead actor for Oppenheimer. I have supporting actor potentially for both two, Downey Jr. and Gosling maybe. And then, um, and I have supporting actress too, potentially, and screenplay. So supporting actress though, I had Blunt maybe for Oppenheimer and Ferreira is who I had for supporting actress. That, that might be a hope. Um, <laughs> but um, what, 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 what I thought was sort of remarkable about the movie and, and part, of, part of what I love about sort of the nature of Greta Gerwig's um, um, filmmaking is that, um, you know, America Ferreira, not only does she have that monologue, but she really drives um, the, a lot of the the ending of that movie. And I remember that at, at, at a certain point, you know, someone said something like, like, what about Barbie? And then they, they pan to Barbie. And I'd forgotten that we hadn't seen Barbie in a while. Right. <laughs> and, um, but, but what was wonderful, like I, I'm, I'm, I'm a, I'm a, I've been kind of a lukewarm Mar Margot Robbie fan, but this movie really made me a, a huge fan of hers because of what she does with this character um, and, and what she does with certain moments in this movie where she made me feel for this doll, right? Um, and um, so so anyway, I, I, I thought that, um, I, I hope that there's room for for America, for an actress that I really have always like admired and really loved. She's always a welcome presence in a movie. Um, and here she was, I felt really essential to the success of this, of this film. I, I just want to uh, uh, echo both of those points, both America Ferreira as like, you know, the, the heart, the sort of core of the movie. And also that I think it's really easy to overlook how good Margot Robbie is in this because it's almost effortless the way that she's embodying the sort of physicality of the doll, interacting with the world around her, showing so much of her growth and change uh, in, in, you know, facial expressions uh, and, and movement. Uh, and, you know, that's, I think that it is really remarkable. I think she does a great job. I, I would uh, definitely, you know, it, it's hard because it's like, well, you know, we haven't seen all of the movies. Uh, I, I would be happy, I think, uh, unless there, you know, are three other, uh, you know, three or four other performances. I, I'm assuming Greta Lee already locked in uh, for a slot. Um, but, uh, you know, that there are four other performances that are better, uh, clearly, to me, than Margot Robbie. But as of right now, that would be great. Like, I think that she... Uh, I think that she deserves that. I had that concern too, because I agree that this movie does not work without her, without this performance. Mm -hmm. Is she's holding the whole thing, even and she's, but she's doing kind of the unsung hero work because she doesn't have a huge monologue like America Ferrera does. That was my first thought. I was like, well, everyone's talking about Ryan Gosling in supporting, right? 
and everyone's really focused, throwing all of their Oscar nomination energy, I think, towards him. Very he had, tendom. And he's, <laughs> I know, right? Uh, it's like, well, what about Barbie? Um, uh, but, but I, and I think, I think that's largely because, I mean, he's amazing. I love him in this movie. He's doing amazing work. But, and he's so funny. His comic timing, his facial expressions. It's like he goes through a million facial expressions in like three seconds. It's like, it's really good. Um, and then he's singing, right? Like there's like all this sort of stuff. But I think if I'm thinking like a very basic Academy voter, I'm gravitating towards him because he has a flashy performance, gravitating even maybe towards America Ferreira first because she's got that big monologue and she has a very clear Oscar reel. But Margot Robbie gets lost in the shuffle, I think, when I'm thinking like a basic Academy mm. voter, because her her work is like crucial to the film, but not as noticeable if you're not paying attention. So that's my concern is that she's going to get left out of the acting nominations mm-hmm. um, if, if there are any for Barbie. And um, and similarly, I think if the field does become more crowded, generally, Barbie, especially in terms of best picture, Barbie c- is much more likely to get squeezed out than Oppenheimer. Yeah. So, so yeah, that's kind of I, my my concern. <laughs> I think my concern along that is that it ends up going the Top Gun lane, right? Mm. They're like, oh, we just need to recognize this movie that made a ton of money. I mean, I, I haven't done the exact math. I'm not a mathematician myself. But uh, I suspect this is the only movie that is, has a shot at dethroning Mario Brothers to be the top grossing movie of the year. And Probably. that may still be a stretch. Um so I worry that if it's that successful and, you know, a little bit of that fatigue uh, sprint marathon, it's like, oh, we've forgotten about Barbie by by February. Um, working in its favor, how great to have Margot Robbie at your award shows. Isn't mm-hmm. it great to put beautiful people on TV? Uh, but working against it is, will there be a ceremony? Who will be at the ceremony? Who will, if the strike by all accounts is as deadlocked as it is, we could still have nothing by then. Uh, I wanted to go back. If Dune sticks to this year, Dune versus Oppenheimer below the line could really yeah. be an interesting That's thing to track get, um, yeah. as, as a piece of that. ugly. <laughs> well, and the last thing I'll say, just also to voice my support for Margot Robbie, who, um, you know, is... Absolutely. The I I didn't get her either. I actually credit Babylon where I was like, oh, she is a great star. Like, I, you know, I had an undergraduate one time be like, Wolf of Wall Street is my favorite movie of all time. Um, a female undergraduate. And I was like, Re- like, are you OK? Like, what's what's the matter? Like, <laughs> what hurt you? Uh, but um, but I didn't get her from that film, uh, perhaps to my detriment. I really got it. I I did not get it in Amsterdam. Amsterdam was just a train wreck. But uh, Babylon, I was like, this is what people see in Margot Robbie. And then I loved her in Asteroid City and then in Barbie this summer. So I think she's having an incredible um, summer. Um, I saw a typical dude on the Internet go, well, I haven't seen this movie, but isn't it just Elf? Uh, which was a particularly funny take uh, because of how terrible it is. But when you're talking about Margot Robbie getting ignored, I think that's the way she gets ignored is like um, what she has to do is so much more complex than that, that, um, you know, Will Ferrell in Elf is just an embodiment of naivete and eventually everybody comes to see the world through his eyes and her journey as a character here is so much more interesting than that, that she gets really challenged and has all these moments. 
I will just say the scene of her on the bench with the old lady, that's the Oscar reel and True. totally mm-hmm. wins in my book. Um, I think uh, if it's a normal award season, the Globes will love Barbie. And I think that will remind people how much they love Barbie. And we might see these nominations we're hoping for. Hmm. Yeah, I can gloves, see that. whatever the gloves are now. Mm, who knows? We don't know. <laughs> uh, I, I just want to add uh, add one thing and ask a question related to what Craig was just saying. Uh, I, I just want to to add to the Margot Robbie love. She's also the reason that Greta Gerwig is the director. Like she got in on Barbie. Uh, like worked out the sort of idea of like, oh, what if I were Barbie? And Mattel was like, great. And she's like, and I want Greta Gerwig to direct it and <laughs> Noah Baumbach to co-write it with her. Um, and so she really pushed that through. And so they, they had this idea, this sort of like, how did they get like Mattel to agree to have this be the movie tied into it? Uh, I think Margot Robbie's a big answer, a big hmm. you know, reason for that's the answer that she sort of shepherded this. So I think she gets a lot of credit. It's good. I think she would get you know, as one of the producers, she would be one of the people nominated for best picture if it gets best picture, if I, if I understand the credits correctly uh, on it. So um, that's really good. Uh, Is, was that, was the old woman on the bench? Is that someone, is that like a a person either in the, like behind the scenes world of Barbie or a particular actress? I like felt like I was supposed to know who that was, but I didn't. From the trailer, I thought it was the creator of Barbie. Yes, but I don't trailer. The trailer put the Rhea Perlman monologue over that woman's picture. So I thought that was all one and it was the creator. So I, I'm just giving myself half credit for being correct. But yes, I so believe I had- the actual creator of, of Barbie is dead. So it was not her. So apparently, I- go ahead, Jen. Oh, Sorry. no, go ahead. Did you Google? I did. Back- I realized I asked that question while having the Barbie Wikipedia page up on the cast. <laughs> and I should have just looked at that before saying it. She's a costume designer. Uh, who has won uh, the Academy Award twice what, for The English Patient and Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. So uh, presumably was the costume designer who dressed her <laughs> on this. She works with Noah Baumbach uh, pretty regularly. Um, and uh, she she also worked with... Uh, I, I, have no, I don't see her on any... Um, any Credit Gerwig movies, but I guess she's been Noah Baumbach's costume designer for the last uh, few movies. There's an internet theory that I'm just seeing now that it's Barbara Handler. So the daughter of the Rhea Perlman hmm. creator of Barbie, which I feel like would be a little too on the nose for me. Thematically, I think it makes more sense if it's nobody, quote unquote, you know, what I mean, like if it's nobody named or that we're supposed to recognize because it ties back into America Ferrera's thing of like, it's OK to be ordinary and that Barbie really mm-hmm. is very meaningful for women who are not the president or Nobel laure- <laughs> laureates or like, you know, I mean like that, um, that are just, they're just ordinary women trying to make their way in the world. Uh, but yeah, but then I found this other article that was like, this is from screen rant. Oh no, don't give me an ad. Get out of here. Oh, it's not loading. While, while we're waiting for that to load, uh, I, I think we need to point out another man in Barbie because that's, what's important <laughs> about the Barbie movie are the men. Uh, Michael Sarah. Uh, in a, in a little bit of screen time, you know, not not Oscar nomination worthy when you've got Ryan Gosling sitting right there in the movie, of course, but he's Michael Sarah just kills it as Alan and and like uh, you know again like I was here I was getting the the not during the movie but in the build up to it she was like oh that's perfect like I didn't know Alan existed but apparently he does and he has and it's like 
a very it is sort of a joke of like he's the leftover he's the only other guy they make besides ken and there's only ever been one alan they didn't make a ton of different alans in different clothes <laughs> they just made him once and they were like no one cares whatever um so him being this sort of like guy who's just sort of there and doesn't fit in and then when it becomes the 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 patriarchy uh, in in Kendom, he's just like I just need to leave. I need to be out of here. Um, was uh, was just a really funny idea, executed really well, fitting in with Michael Sarah's uh, you know general vibe and persona. Um, and you know, I thought every time he was on screen, he was getting a laugh. And uh, I think you know that's again, it feels bad to single out another male performance in the Barbie movie, but I did want to point out how great he was. I thought Issa Rae was amazing as President Barbie. Mm-hmm. She was great. Um, she just had so much. Uh, and like, she's the funniest, I think, during the Deke programming Barbie's scheme. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, I laughed the most, mm-hmm. I think, for her. So I think this is a good transition into, I wanted to ask, because I think it's, you know, according to the Oscar buzz discourse already, there's, we've already mentioned all the key kind of acting nominations, but particularly for Oppenheimer's, just so the, because the cast is so big, are there, but also Barbie, if you can think of something, but are there performances that you feel like should be nominated for supporting, but won't be because, you know, they're getting lost in the shuffle or there's too many of them? I mean, I, personally, I feel like you could fill out a, a full roster of best supporting actor from Oppenheimer. <laughs> um, I mean, Robert Downey Jr., I think, is the one that, that the support will coalesce behind. He has the sort of career narrative. Um, there, there's theoretically sort of a justice for Chaplin, uh, but not really because if someone else should have won in 92, it should have been Denzel for Malcolm X, but whatever. Um, but you know, this like, oh, he's been so good for so long, but also he's been kind of trapped as Tony Stark. And the thing I really liked about seeing him in this movie was like, oh, he's acting again. Like it does sort of feel like this is the first time he's not just kind of being a version of the Shane Black version of Robert Downey Jr., which he's kind of been in a lot of things since. Uh, I don't want to say going all the way back to Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, but I certainly like was the judge the last time he like was trying. Um, you know, not that it succeeded uh, in the judge, but you know, it's been a while since he was trying, and I feel like uh, you know he gets he gets a little uh, bombastic in a way that. I think works, but some maybe some people don't. Um, but uh, you know, I think he's doing great. So you have Robert Downey Jr. I think there's, there's, they're going to coalesce around him. But I mean, Matt Damon, Alden Ehrenreich, Jason Clark, uh, uh, David Crumholtz. I think all four of those uh, in in another timeline. In a in if 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 Robert, if Robert Downey Jr. maybe wasn't in this movie, any one of them could be the the one that people start to be like, actually that person in the, giving this performance in this movie, uh, you know, could get some momentum. So uh, obviously I'm not advocating for that, but I do think there's a roster full of dudes that could get, uh, could get support in this movie. I really like David Krumholtz and Josh Hartnett. They're probably my favorite supporting, supporting like un- under the actual supporting. Um, I, not that I think it's deserving of an Oscar nomination, but I really also really enjoyed Matt Damon in this movie. He was like, he's really honed in the, between this and air, he's really honed in on his, like, I don't know. Middle um, manager. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's really good. I, um, I think, uh, in the other atomic bomb movie that tried to show this story, it was Paul Newman in like the eighties. So it's mm-hmm. funny how much younger Matt Damon is, but, um, is 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 filling that in the just the steam train of uh air 
cannot be deflated by a second nomination for Matt Damon. Uh, so uh, I think you hit on all of mine. A uh, big shout out to Josh Hartnett, which it's like, did we forget about him? Like he, he's fine. I mean, I, I never was the biggest fan, but you know, he's been gone for so long. Apologies to the Guy Ritchie movie he was in a couple years ago. Oh. Uh, but um, I'll just give a little shout out to uh, Casey Affleck, which was maybe the one I didn't see coming. I was like, oh, and, you know, just come on, making him the antagonist to Matt Damon. I'm sure they called Ben first, but, uh, you know, he just nailed it with this really dark menace for three minutes i don't even know it wasn't all that long it just felt like it was really well done so uh shout out to casey um my last oscars thought is that we could be living in a world where original song includes just ken and peaches 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 (laughs) (laughs) and that makes me really happy Yeah, it, like, if there is an award ceremony, if they have the option to have both Ryan Gosling and Jack Black performing from together. the two highest grossing movies uh, of the year, presumably, uh, and then they don't do it, that would be that would be a fumble for for, for if it, th- there can't be more than three Diane Warren songs uh, that they <laughs> nominate this year. No, I, I'm going to say I want my vote goes to Lizzo and then we get to recreate the weirdest Star Wars of all time by having Jack Black and Lizzo yes. uh, perform at the ceremony. Special <laughs> guest Grogu. That's a good, that's a good call. Um, all right. So I think we are ready to close this Barbie box or redact these classified files. I don't know what a good metaphor um, for, for this would be, but I think we're, we're ready to wrap up. So this was, this was great. This was, <laughs> and we managed to go for two movies, just a little over two hours. So good job, everybody. We did it. Uh, we can, we can all glad handle each other. Not quite like Los Alamos. No, we, <laughs> I think we can feel better. Off, about the, what we just off did. the bleachers in celebration. <laughs> That's right. What's sad um, is when no more movies come out this fall, we need to do six more episodes on each of these, right? Like, <laughs> the the awards race actually ends today if nothing comes out this fall. <laughs> That's really true. Yeah, that um, yeah, that'll be really, really, really interesting to see. And I think the only way we'll be able to the wind will we'll be able to like kind of sort of see where the wind's blowing with that is if more and more studio, if like the cascading effect of like more and more movies get pushed to twenty twenty four. And then it's like, mm-hmm. if if Killers of the Flower Moon does not come out, then <laughs> I will riot. It's like, that's not okay. We need that movie this year. Um, I was, I'm super sad about Dune, but I can wait for Dune. But for Oscars purposes, I feel like Killers of the Flower Moon needs to be in the mix. Anyway. Um, it's while everyone's uh, alive. While everyone involved is still here to, to, <laughs> to exist. Let Marty talk about it. Yeah. Um, all right. So... Thanks, thanks, all of you. Let's start with PT. Where can if folks want to keep up with the show? Mm. They which can follow. Be, which won't be promoting Struck work on our social media page, but we'll be promoting yes. our own work. Yes, very a very uh, interesting needle uh, to thread. <laughs> um, but uh, the, you can follow us at the Long Take Review on Instagram. Uh, and also on threads, even though I haven't logged into that account on threads for <laughs> probably a week. But uh, but yeah, the, the long take review all is one word. Uh, follow us on Instagram. We would love that. And Greg, what's your what's your podcasting roster looking like these days? 
Uh, it's all up in the air because of uh, strike uh, and solidarity. But uh, I will say uh, my podcast uh, that I co-host, that is a Wheel of Time read-along podcast, uh, is uh, called Through the Glass Columns. Uh, and starting on Friday, August 4th, I think is what the Friday is, whatever the Friday is around there, um, we start our recap of the first season of the television program. Not to promote the arrival of season two, but to celebrate the work of uh, actors and writers, including Celine Song, who uh, were a major part of oh. the first season of that show. Um, so uh, we if if you're not a reader, not interested in being a reader, but would like to, to uh, dive in on content that's not too dissimilar from this, uh, you can check out those episodes. It's four episodes every Friday in August that do two episodes of the television show each. And where can people find you on the internet more generally? Uh, nowhere. No, I am on threads and Instagram uh, at IonCanon, E-Y-E-O-N-C-A-N-O-N. And Antonio, I know you're notoriously not on social media. Good for you. Um, so, but but wait, if folks were to have a question for you about your Barbenheimer takes, where, where could they find you potentially? Uh, I mean, they could they could find my LinkedIn profile. <laughs> I have nothing. I have nothing. Um, so yeah, just here. I'm I'm only here. I only exist for you, Ten. <laughs> DM me, cast, and we'll pass it along. <laughs> write, write it on a slip of paper, fold it up, write <laughs> it. it on fire, and yeah. throw the ashes to the wind, and maybe Antonio will hear. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Uh, that sounds something like something best done in New Mexico. Um, yeah, <laughs> in the desert. Um, all right. And a anything else you want to promote? No, no. I, I, last time I okay. promoted a student thing, I will say I was I was just on vacation. I took the occasion to watch uh, The Bear season two, which was incredible. So mm -hmm. that's that it I is. highly recommend. Yeah. It is. Maybe we need to do a bear pod, even though that's oh, TV. Yeah. Mm. Um, yeah. I, I'm itching to talk to them, talk to them about that show with other people. Um, all right. And you can find me at Subchakchai, S-O-P-C-H-O-C-K-C-H-A-I on Instagram and threads. And you can find me on Letterboxd at Kwai Gun Jen, which is very active lately, thanks to Barbenheimer. So, all right, that's a wrap. Thanks, everybody. Thank you for listening. You can follow The Long Take on Substack at thelongtake.substack.com. Subscribe for free to receive reviews of films with Oscar buzz, as well as new films and series from pop franchises like Star Wars and Marvel.